3: South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555.
4: And it is a beautiful morning out there. Boy, if you haven't stepped outside yet, uh, you might even want to turn around and put on a long sleeve shirt or something like that. It was 58 degrees in my house when I left this morning. Uh, it's just going to be a beautiful Sunday out there. Doesn't look like we're going to get any rain today, maybe a little bit tonight, maybe some over the next couple of days. Doubt if it's going to be the storm they were originally promising us, and uh, we sure do need the rain. Put some water back in the rivers and the reservoirs all around the hill country, but... Uh, like my old friend Alton used to always say, every day we're one day closer to that next good rain. You know, frequently starting off on Sunday morning, every line is full, but I've actually got a couple of open lines this morning. No, we're going to start out talking with Theresa, but if you want to grab a line early, you know the number, 210-599-5555. Looks like Charles just jumped in line next. So uh anyway, if you've got that question that you don't want to wait and deal with all the busy signals later in the show, uh, now would be a good time to calls so tell you what lots of things to talk about uh fall is really in the air time to think about that fall vegetable garden time to think about fall bedding plants definitely need to get that fertilizer on the landscape anyway whatever is ventures to you uh you can just pick up the phone and give me a call and we'll just get started right now with Teresa good morning Teresa good morning sir how are you I'm doing well. It's just a gorgeous morning. I I really wish I was sitting on the other side of this window out there in this beautiful, cool air, but uh, at least can feel a little bit of that breeze blowing in. It sure is a nice day.
5: Yes, it is, and I'm fixing to get out there and go to war, and I need your
4: help. (laughs) What are you going to war against?
5: Fire ants in a raised
4: bed. Okay. Uh, It's a
5: vegetable patch, so I don't want to use anything... Um, toxic. I, I was looking at maybe using some orange oil. I found uh, a little article by your friend, the Dirt Doctor, uh-huh. that said you could use orange oil
4: mixed, I think, with Dawn detergent to kill fire ants. That will work very well. Uh, it's one option. Um, you don't want to make sure orange oil too strong. Do you already have your vegetables in and planted?
5: No, we just cleared this bed of everything oh, okay. from the Spring and
4: summer, so it's it's just dirt right now. Yeah, well that would be that would be a great option if you already have the orange oil. There's also another similar product based on rosemary, it's called Mound Drench by the folks at Nature's Guide. I'm sorry, at Nature's Creation, that is designed specifically for fire ants, but I think the orange oil works just as well. I'm not sure what Howard recommended for killing fire ants in empty soil. I'd probably put about two ounces of uh, orange oil to a gallon of water, and just drench the mound very, very thoroughly. And uh, the uh, little bit of soap, just really, just enough to act as a surfactant. But you will kill the ants almost instantly. So you know exactly, you know exactly where the mound is in this area.
5: Well, we thought we did. We spent, and I don't want to admit how many hours we spent yesterday trying to do the boiling water technique, and all we did is make a mess. Yeah. So yeah. um I wasn't impressed with that at all.
6: Uh, <laughs> at
5: the end of the day, when we finished with that battle, they were still making little tiny mounds, and it's like you yeah. got to be kidding me.
4: Well, and the fire it ants. gives gotten... me a lot
5: of respect for fire
7: ants. Though.
4: Well, and they, you know, nowadays we've even, we're even getting some of what they call the super mounds where they can have multiple queens and several million ants per mound. But if you have a good idea of where the, where the mound is, the uh, orange oil and water combination will do a very good job of killing them it will kill them almost instantly um, if you did not know where the mound were, you just knew you were seeing a lot of fire ants i think you're usually more successful to go with a bait like the come and get it which is a spinosad based bait it is totally safe for vegetable gardens totally safe for people and pets we even give spinosad to our puppy dogs in oral form for flea control and uh, it's a product that you can just scatter around the ants will pick it up and take it back to the mound But it can take One to several days For it to work Nice thing about The orange oil And water Is uh, it is almost Instantaneous Fifteen minutes later You should have Nothing but dead Ants out there So uh, um, This is a battle That's not going to be Too hard to fight And uh, you're going to be Very successful
5: Okay And question As far as Planting um, We were going to Use this bed To put some root crops In beets And things like that uh-huh. Is it How do you have to wait a period of time after you use this concoction? You
4: know, I would wait for the soil to dry out a little bit, not because there's any danger with the orange oil, but being a strong solvent, um, it, you know, if you pour it on live roots of a plant, you can burn, but, uh, it's gonna be neutralized by things in the soil within hours. In fact, it even converts to something that is, uh, good for the plant. So, you know, I'd, I'd wait at least a couple hours before you go back out and plant, but there's no long waiting period. And it's not because of any toxicity. It's just that, uh, the desiccating quality of the orange oil would, uh, would be hard on right. plant roots. It, all it is, it's a, it's a chemical in effect called the limonene that is squeezed from citrus peas so uh, not anything unnatural about it. It, uh, You know, it, it's used for a lot of different things. But it's its solvent qualities that uh, it sort of softens the exoskeleton of a different mm-hmm. insects up. And then the bacteria, naturally occurring bacteria, will polish them off. So it's a great way to go. It's 100% organic, leaves no trace behind, and uh, very pleasant smelling. <laughs> I don't know what more we could ask for from an ant killer.
5: That sounds awesome. We're going to give that a shot in just a few minutes. The other question regarding orange oil. Yes. uh, I know you've answered this for other folks. I have some terraces that lead up to our home, and at some point they became infested with nutsedge. Okay. How do I get rid of that?
4: Well, nutsedge is, you know, it's not a grass. It is a really, really tough uh, weed to eradicate you can use orange oil and vinegar uh, you will not kill it with one application. It will take uh, maybe even three or four applications. It's funny. I was just out in front of our nursery looking where they sprayed some nutsedge, probably yesterday, and it's already turning good and brown. But that little nut, that little bulb-like structure mm-hmm. underground, has the ability to sprout back numerous times. But um, it's as effective as just about anything. Um, you can also use Molasses. In fact, if you were to, you know, kill the top of the nutsedge off with your orange oil vinegar mix, and then follow up with a fairly concentrated molasses solution, you will knock it down. You'll get rid of it more quickly. But there is no product out there, natural or synthetic, that's just a one-time application. And you're done with the nutsedge. It's just, it's just one of nature's tougher little uh, plants.
5: Well, I watched my grandfather do battle with nutsedge in his garden, and I watched him one time. And I'm not exaggerating. Dig a hole almost three feet deep, trying to find. Yep. And, <laughs> yeah, it was just incredible. So I I know it's not going to be easy, but I've got to get rid of this. It's in a there's there's other plantings in there that I don't want to damage. I've got some firebush that's been there for about you know eight years or more. Sure. That I I don't want to do anything to, and and some um, other things. So. Uh, I'll get out my piece of cardboard to protect those, and um, hopefully, don't
4: overspray anything. Well, they're just you know nice combination of
5: vinegar.
4: Uh, Vinegar is uh, two ounces of orange, yeah, two ounces of orange oil to a gallon of vinegar, and with the vinegar, the stronger the better. If you're getting it at the grocery store, use pickling vinegar. Get it at the nursery, Mm -hmm. you'll use 20% vinegar. Now, one thing to remember and, you know, about nuts edge is that it doesn't really hurt anything. We've been conditioned to view it as a weed and everybody wants to get rid of it. But I know years ago Malcolm Beck told me that the most beautiful field of corn he'd ever seen was growing in a sea of nuts edge. So, uh, there are a handful of things. I don't like it around potatoes because that little sharp spike will actually you know, burrow its way into the potato as it, as it grows. But this is not anything that's, you know, gonna cause any problems other than cosmetics. So, uh, um, don't don't wear yourself. Don't wear your fingers to the bone, you know, trying to eliminate it immediately because it will take time, and you certainly can get rid of it. But uh, um, it's not the it's not the scourge that some other painful things like grass burrs and some you know really really smothering weeds uh, can be. So go after it, but uh, be prepared to have, for a lengthy battle. This is not going to be as easy as killing the fire ants.
5: Well, I've been trying to get rid of this for, for a while now, and so I'm, I'm prepared. I've girded my loins, as I say in the Bible, but um, there's a um, tree that's within close proximity, so I know that the roots of that tree are probably deep underneath there. Is there any way I'm going to hurt my tree?
4: No, yes, oh, you're boy. not going to. Um and the thing about it is to be persistent. You know it's going to come back. Just don't let it get really well established. I've got a little section of a, of a, uh, concrete, or not concrete, but a flagstone patio that I built a little over a year ago, and I had some nutsedge come up through it. And I was just very vigilant. Every evening I would pull up every sign of a little bit of nutsedge coming through it. After about three months, it just gave up and died, and I've not had to deal with it in quite some time. So just uh, just be diligent about it. And uh, any time it reappears, don't put it off. Go ahead and take care of it, and you'll get rid of it pretty quickly, Teresa. All right,
8: I'm going to get my orange oil out, and we're going to go to war. You go to war
4: on it, and you call any time when you be of assistance. And uh, let's move on and talk to uh, Charles. Uh, good morning, Charles.
2: Well, good morning, Bob. First of all, let me
1: say that yeah, I very much enjoy your, your program. I find it very educational and informative uh, on well, many aspects. Thank aspect. you very much. Uh, thank, thank you for that. But my question, Bob, is I am considering planting some Japanese yew's. And it's in an area that receives sunlight throughout the entire day, obviously in the summertime that's exposed to high temperatures, high heat. And I had read that Japanese ewes don't really thrive in that type of environment. Uh, What's your opinion about that?
4: If you're in reasonable soil, they absolutely love it. I've seen uh, some of the biggest ones I've ever seen that were probably, you know, 30, 40 years old are in an environment just like that. And uh, I recall seeing one over in Terrell Hills not long ago that must have been 30 feet tall. So as long as you, you know, maintain them with the appropriate water and fertilizer and as long as you're not just sitting on a shelf of rock, uh Japanese yew will do just fine. Now, do not confuse Japanese yew with the very toxic northern yew, which is a totally different plant. It's actually a conifer, and I don't think that well that yew doesn't do real well here to begin with, but uh mm. Japanese yew is properly called podocarpus. It has you know, no relationship to the other form of you. And I've never seen it mine the heat, the sun, uh, and it's certainly not toxic in any way. So uh, right. as long as you're able to keep up with watering and all, you should do just fine with it.
1: Well, to that point, Bob, I do live in the Stone Oak area, and obviously we have mm-hmm. a lot of rock here. I mean, I think my topsoil is maybe two or three inches <laughs> at most. Um mm-hmm. If I can't dig down deep enough, what do you recommend in terms of the type of soil that I plant uh, into the hole with the Japanese yew?
4: I just you know a good uh, garden soil. You don't ever you don't ever want to go out and just find the most perfect soil in the world in planting landscape plants because then the plant has no incentive to grow its roots beyond the hole. I basically fill the soil you know, that I took out of the hole is what goes back in. Now obviously if you have to pry some big rocks out of the ground you may just need some additional soil. But I just use uh I just use a garden mix of some sort. Uh only thing wrong with using topsoil would be number one, it's hard to find good topsoil and it almost always has weeds in it. But um uh, The one thing you don't want to do is, in effect, create a basin that would hold water. It's not one of these things where uh, we're going to go and jackhammer a hole in order to get the plant in the ground. If you can't dig deeply enough then you need to think about building sort of a raised bed around it, perhaps using, you know, rock or brick or whatever material your home is made of. You can make it very attractive. But uh, the last thing we want to do is uh, is just jackhammer a swimming pool into the rock that's going to hold water right. because that would be highly detrimental. When you look around your yard, do you have any good-sized trees on your property? Do you have existing vegetation there? I actually do. I have some very large live oaks. Well, that tells me that there are plenty of fissures in the rock because you can always judge the amount of rock and uh, its proximity to the surface by the size of the trees. If you told me you have, oh, I've got a bunch of trees and they're all about four inches in diameter, I'm gonna tell you you're sitting on a shelf of rock and you're definitely gonna to have to uh you know, to build up. But if you've got right. those big old majestic live oaks that you have in a lot of the stone oak uh development out there, you know, obviously you've got lots of fissures down in that rock where those trees are able to put their roots and thrive. So uh I I see long term prospects for you doing very well there. It's just a question of uh <laughs> getting it into the ground. And right. and hopefully the uh I don't know, I helped a friend do some landscaping out there, uh, in her yard a few years ago, and there were places in her yard we could dig a nice hole three feet deep, and then there were places where the rock was right up against the surface, so, um if you have any latitude in, uh, moving the, the siding of this plant around a little bit, it'll be a little bit easier. Um, (laughs) What does the fellow said, if it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Sometimes uh, I I find that, you know, the the, the biggest rock ledge in the world is always right where I want to plant that plant. So uh, just get out there with your digging bar, probe around, and uh, see what you find. But I I wouldn't have any hesitation for planting uh, uh, Japanese Yew in in your area. Uh, Remember, it's going to be an upright shrub. It's going to not be as spreading as something like xylospa or even pituspa forum but uh, beautiful tree long live tree and very few problems excellent thank you very much bob have a great day my pleasure you have a good day charles thank you sir goodbye all right gonna do a quick break and then it will be bill and mac and uh i get to talk to you for a moment about tank depot and uh You know, if you're looking around, if you're looking to take on a new project, everybody is looking for projects right now. It's why the landscapers are so busy. It's why the hardware stores are so busy. It's why my friends at the Tank Depot were fairly busy, too, because a lot of people are realizing the advantage of having rainwater catchment. You know, every time we get an inch of rain, if you've got the average 3,000-square-foot roof, you'll collect a couple of thousand gallons of rainwater. You look at how much money that will save you on your saws, Bill. You look at how nice it is to have that good clean rainwater and um, you know it just makes sense but you have to have tanks you have to be able to store that water and that's where the tank depot comes in they've always got the best prices they've always got the best quality tanks and you would not believe the selection of different styles of rainwater catchment tanks of course they also have many other kinds of tanks transfer tanks tanks for the back of your pickup open top tanks bait tanks chemical storage tanks if it's a tank you're going to find it at the tank depot check them out today online at tank-depot.com weekdays, you can go see them if you like they're on Southeast Loop 410 just south of Rigsby Avenue and uh, they can offer delivery if you need that service as well, that's the Tank Depot
3: South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster, News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071
4: Alright back to gardening, back to the phone lines going to be Bill and Mac and Judy and Dave and Bill is up first, good morning Bill
1: Hey, good morning, Bob. Uh, I hear good you telling people uh, about the uh, uh, grass. It's, uh, the carpet grass. It's good for shade. The Delmar and the uh, Palmetto. Yes, sir. Uh, what's the What's the one for full sun?
4: Best one for full sun is the one that was developed jointly by the University of Florida and Texas A&M, and they have the totally unimaginative name of FloraTAM uh, for that grass. It's a little coarser grass. It actually is better in the sun than in the shade. It was developed mainly for its heat tolerance and chinch bug resistance. And of course, we don't have many chinch bugs uh, in San Antonio, but it's a you know real problem as you get down toward the coast. So if you're for the tough St. Augustine for sun, it's going to be Floritam.
1: Yep, Very familiar with it. I just didn't know if there was one that might be even better.
4: That's no, I haven't heard sure. of it yet. There's several new ones out, and uh, I don't think they've improved them at all. In fact, some of the ones they've came out with several years ago, like Raleigh, has turned out to be a very, very brown patch susceptible grass. So, uh, right. Floratam's still my choice for the sun. Either Palmetto or Delmar are still my choices for the shade.
1: Okay. Uh, the main reason I called, my neighbor and I are going to go in partners on a a, a large load of uh, compost, and okay. we called New Earth, and they say that it's not too early to put it down. Is well, that true?
4: Uh, It depends on whether you believe the weathermen or not. Uh, Looking 10 days out, you know, these clowns can't get it right unless they're looking out the window and watching rainfall. And even then, they'll only move up to an 80% chance. But my forecast says, you know, we're out of the 90s for the next 10 days. And once that happens, then, uh, you know, I'm comfortable putting it out. And... Even if you put it out when the weather's still hot, you're not gonna kill your grass. You're gonna get some yellowing. You're gonna make your grass not look so good. So, um, I, you know, we, we've got a several months window for putting it out. So I'm not in a rush to put on my fall compost. But if this is the time that you have the time and, you know, and, and the help to do it, uh, I think you're probably okay to put it out and just, uh, you know, go for, uh, uh they will do it anyway, but just tell them you want the most finished product they have, whether you get it directly yep. from New Earth or whether you get it from Stone and Soil Depot. It's pretty much the same. Stone and Soil Depot buys most of their compost from New Earth. I will caution you that New Earth does a biosolids compost and a manure-based compost, I personally stay away from the biosolids. It's not that I, well, it does have a little bit more odor to it, which is not as pleasant. But I, I'm still concerned about the pharmaceuticals and all the stuff that are in our waste stream these days. So if I were buying directly from New Earth, I would make certain that I got their. Uh, that they're, I got their manure-based product. I'm pretty sure that that's all that Stone and Soil sells. I don't think they buy the, the, uh, biosolids, uh, product from New Earth. But whichever way you go, uh, I would just go, I think price is probably going to be very much the same. I would just, uh, ask about delivery, ask about charges for delivery, and, um, how promptly they can do it. And hopefully they will be willing to, uh, you know, dump half of it approximately in your yard and half of it in your neighbor's yard. Cause a big load of compost, uh, is a lot to move around with a shovel and a, <laughs> and a wheelbarrow. And since you're going to have to be doing that anyway, I'd, i try to get them to spread it out, uh, you know, some in his yard, some in your yard, uh, if possible.
1: Well, we were actually going to go get it ourselves. What is that? Oh, okay. Like? Is it real, real heavy, or is it light and fluffy?
4: Ah, uh, it's pretty we, heavy. Yeah, pretty heavy. How it. how much are you looking at getting?
1: Well, we're doing about two acres, so we're going to okay. get we'll probably make two loads.
4: Oh, you're going to make multiple, multiple, multiple loads. Unless you have, do you have a big trailer? Um, we do. Okay. Yeah. I'll okay. Make, because a large
1: uh, type trailer.
4: Yeah, it's, uh, of course the weight will depend on the moisture in the compost. It'll depend on whether it rained the night before. But, uh, you can, you know, they can give you a pretty I- good idea of the weight, uh, before you go pick it up. But, um it's, oh golly, I'm gonna guess that a cubic yard probably is, uh, one cubic yard is probably gonna be 800 pounds to 1,000 pounds. Whoa, so, really? when you, yeah, when, okay. when you get, uh, when you get a, I, I'm just thinking that's about the maximum they can put in the back of a pickup. And even then, that pickup's gonna squat down. Yeah. <laughs> even my 350, uh, uh, you know, knows that it's got a load in the back of it. But, uh, ask them, uh, you know, when you order because they have to keep up with weight, uh, because of textile regulations sure. and things like that. And, uh, Um, in fact, for safety purposes, they'll be very careful that they don't overload, um, your vehicle or, or overload your trailer. But, uh, um, you know, and if you're, if, if, if if you're a rural guy and you're, you're used to doing this, you know that you're always going to use a trailer, a four wheel trailer rather than a two wheel trailer and take a good tarp to cover it. So, uh, Um, the troopers don't worry about what's flying off the trailer and, uh, but no, it's great if you can pick it up yourself, but, uh, you're going to be getting a good deal of it and there's, uh, uh, and I'm trying to remember exactly what they call it, uh, putting it in a trailer. I don't know if they make one for a trailer, but uh, there's a neat little device. Uh, I think they call it the load handler that goes in the back end of a pickup truck that's uh, basically a, a tarp with a little uh, windlass uh, winding device on it that uh, you can use it to empty uh, a pickup truck. I don't know if they do the same thing for a trailer, but uh, you know, the fewer times you have to pick that stuff up with a shovel, <laughs> the, yeah. the better the job's going to go.
1: Yeah, I've seen that gadget you're talking about, but uh, yeah. that stuff going down the road, it'll blow out of the trailer. It's that. I oh, it
4: certainly will. It certainly will. Okay. You need to tarp it down pretty well. Uh, if you're not getting an excessively heavy load, you can probably ask them to wet it down, which will reduce the blowing. But I'd still tarp it because it will. Uh, uh, you don't have to be going very fast to be leaving a fair amount of it behind.
1: Okay. One of your other shows said that the uh, poultry poultry uh, is better than the uh, cattle manure.
5: Uh, you know.
4: Uh, it's it It certainly has more nutrient in it. A cow is a very efficient processor of what it eats, and uh that 's when why when you compare you know cow manure to horse manure uh horse manure you 're going to get weed seeds you 're going to get a lot of odor uh, because it, it let 's just say the hay goes pretty quickly through the horse uh, it goes to the cow a whole lot more slowly so that it is um, it's a lot cleaner in that it doesn't have the weed seeds and that it's much more thoroughly digested. But when you start talking about, and I I feel like the main thing you get out of uh, any kind of manure is going to be, or any kind of compost, is going to be the microbial life in it. But if you're getting a poultry litter compost, then you're very definitely getting a much higher level of the three nutrients that they measure in fertilizers, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. You're going to find the... That uh, is substantially higher in a poultry litter manure. In fact, that's what a number of companies make actual fertilizer out of. So a nutrient value, yeah, poultry litter's uh, going to be a whole lot higher. General overall microbial life, I don't think there's a lot of difference.
1: I guess you can ask for it. The poultry versus the cattle.
4: Yeah I'm not sure um if they have a poultry based compost. The thing about New Earth and their compost is They are a very big company, and they have access to a wide, wide range of feedstocks. I mean, they get old ice cream. They get vegetable waste from uh, HEB. They get, you know, all kinds of things go into their compost. So the more different substrates you have, the compost is derived from, the greater the diversity of the microbial life. And uh, I don't know if they have a strictly poultry-based litter, it's just gonna depend on, uh, you know, on who they're getting it from. My guess is that they probably will not have straight poultry litter the uh the chicken guys and turkey guys have learned that that stuff is valuable, and they get a pretty good price for it uh yeah. and new earth of course, is looking to bring you the best product they can at the lowest price possible and uh yeah. let's just say cow poop's a whole lot cheaper than chicken poop <laughs> so ask yeah. ask and I, I may be mistaken but okay. i I'm not aware if they have a strictly poultry litter based uh compost.
1: Well, good. Super. That answers all my questions. I like the lady a minute ago talking about her husband digging three feet for a nutsedge nut. <laughs> yeah, I wish I could dig a
4: hole three feet deep, but uh, what's that? <laughs> yeah,
1: I know. I know. But it's such a trophy. When you get one, you want to show all your neighbors.
4: <laughs> uh, there you go. <laughs> 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 Bill, you get out and have a wonderful Sunday, and uh, it's good to talk to you. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Goodbye. All right, looks like I better pause for a quick break here. Mac is up next, then Judy and Dave. Um, I get to talk to you about Rhonda's Nature's Way, and that's another subject that's just near and dear to my heart because, you know, I lead a very active life, always have. And I'm, you know, very happy with the fact that I can't really think of anything I can't do that I could, you know, could do a few years ago. I credit a lot of that to, uh, you know, knowing who to ask for help with supplements, with vitamins, with uh, different products just to maintain good health. Uh, right now, I personally think it's very important to do everything you can to keep your immune system up. I think it'll really, really make you more resistant to the COVID. And if you get it, it's going to make your chances of a qu- complete, quick recovery a whole Lot better. I rely on Rhonda Bona. Rhonda's nature's way to ask my questions of, and I love her immune support formula. I love her, some of the vitamins that she carries are just, you know, head and shoulders above anything you're going to pull off a grocery store shelf or a chain pharmacy shelf where they really don't know anything but the name and the price. Rhonda's the opposite. She knows everything there is about every product on the shelves. Uh, she has tested it. She can tell you all about it, and you'll get things that work for you specifically. And everybody. Body's a little bit different you want to find out a little bit about yourself go have a reflexology session and she will tell you literally how every organ in the body is functioning she she said oh you had an ulcer one time didn't you when i did and i said yeah that was all the way back in grad school and she said uh, well your body remembers anyway Rhonda's an amazing lady and her stores are a great place to find things that are going to help keep you healthier and if you're like me right now working out in the heat a lot remember you need electrolytes along with that water you consuming and she's now carrying the what i love it's it's something called ultima it's a great electrolyte formula with all without all the sugar you get in the sports drink and she's got a good selection of it there i go in periodically and work hard to clean her out but she's she's very well stocked just get by and see her sometime you can't go see her today because they're always closed on sunday but monday through saturday Southside stores over on southwest military Northside stores there in that shopping center at the corner of I 10 and Callahan, kind of across the parking lot from Sprouts. You go see my friends if you want a healthier, natural way to live.
3: And that's Rhonda's Nature's Way. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071.
4: All right, back to gardening. It's going to be Mac and Judy and Dave and Mark. And Mac is up first. Good morning, Mac.
2: Good morning. I'm enjoying your show. It's a breath of fresh air compared to everything else that's in the news and on the radio. <laughs> I
4: don't, I don't listen to much of anything, but uh, oh, yeah. Jimmy Buffett and uh, occasional classical music. And I'm afraid the news station just lost me a while back. So well, glad to be that bit of fresh air.
2: Well, it's appreciated, and I have four quick questions. One was last week you were talking about pruning a tree and not uh, going right up against the trunk okay i uh, think uh, if
4: i remember right we were talking about young trees and every leaf on a tree is in effect a sugar factory. And if you want a skinny, weak trunk, you do what a lot of the growers do, and that is cut off every little branch that comes out up and down the trunk. A more a more quality-oriented grower will leave the small branches up and down the trunk, but will not let them make big limbs. What I do when I set out a young tree is I will go through, usually every winter, and I just, all those little side limbs coming off, I will cut them back to about six inches long. You know, fairly well up the trunk, and then I let them come back out, because everywhere I've got leaves up and down the trunk, it's pumping sugars back into the trunk, and that trunk's going to expand in diameter and expand in strength much more quickly. Then when that trunk is up to, you know, six, seven inches, up to a really nice-sized tree, then I'll go through and cut them all the way back up against the trunk. But um, the name I've heard applied to it by good growers is Trashy Trunk. And uh, I certainly do recommend it pretty much on any hardwood tree or, well, really any, any tree that you're planting out there other than palm trees.
2: Well, that's interesting. How, on, a, uh, on a tree that you're pruning, just uh-huh. a, a well-established tree, uh-huh. is there, a, is there a, a rule of thumb on how far to stay away from the trunk when you take off a limb?
4: Well, there there is. It will vary from tree to tree and actually vary from limb to limb. If you will study where that limb comes out, you'll see a slight difference in the bark, and that is referred to as the branch collar, Mm C-O-L-L-A-R. And you always want to cut just beyond that because that branch collar is loaded up with cells that are ready to... Come back and grow over and seal up that wound. So you never want to cut the branch collar off. You want to cut just beyond the branch collar. Uh, some trees that may be a quarter of an inch out. Some trees that may be five eighths of an inch out. So it's always going to be pretty close to the trunk, but definitely not flush with the trunk.
2: That's fascinating. Well, now I have some que- uh, three quick questions on seeds. Well, okay. two on seeds and one on a plant. Mexican Buckeye, Mm -hmm. I have a, last week, I came across a uh, Mexican Buckeye Mm -hmm. in a uh, natural landscape, and it was just loaded with pods and uh, seeds. The Mm -hmm. pods were partially open, the seeds were dry, and I picked a lot of them. And I have done this before, and I talked to you about it. I asked this question for you before, but I need a little refresher on this. When you said Mexican buckeye was a wonderful plant and tree, uh huh, yeah. Well, it's more of a big shrub, but
4: yeah, it's and it's. I'm sorry.
2: Set them out. Set those the, 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 the 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 little seeds.
4: Mother Nature's doing it right now. If those seed pods are partially open and the, you know, seed is falling, it doesn't really make any difference whether you plant them now or wait till next spring. They may not sprout until spring anyway, but I tell you, Mexican buckeye is one of the easiest plants to propagate from seed I have ever planted. I don't really do anything to prepare the seed except, you know, poke it about an inch deep down in a pot full of soil. And it seems like uh, sometimes I feel like I plant 100 seeds and get 150 plants. So uh, that's one that should be easy for you. Collect your seed and either plant it now, or if you want to put it in a you know a bag in a cool place and plant them in the spring, you can do whichever you like.
2: Okay. My next question is on uh, Wahia. Uh mm-hmm. Uh, I know my dad always loved Wahia. Mm-hmm. Uh Bushes, because he said that was excellent feed for uh, cattle and deer and whatnot. And I saw another thing they had, they had a wahia plant that I thought uh, made an attractive uh, shrub or bush. And Mm. I got to thinking, when is the time to, if you were going to, uh, put out a wahia seed? Um,
4: again, you can do it almost any time. It's gonna be a hard seed. Mother Nature designed that plant so that its seed could lie there for years if necessary before the conditions were ripe for it to sprout and grow. I, you know, you'd have to love a native landscape look to think of Wahia as a uh, as an attractive landscape plant it's it's not well, going to win any beauty contest in my well, book but if, if it's a plant you like it's certainly a, a hardy native shrub
2: well uh that's me and i, I like native stuff like that and mm-hmm. the mexican buckeye does that seed last for years
4: I'm sure it would. My experience is that uh, rodents and other things apparently love to eat it because mm-hmm. I find that uh, I rarely find the seed on the ground. If I'm going to collect Mexican Buckeye seed to propagate, I'm pretty much going to get it out. You know, it has that interesting three-chambered seed pod, three locules they call it, and uh, rarely do I find a seed on the ground underneath the plant, even if there are you know dozens of open seed pods up above. And if I wait too late to get it uh, somehow the critters managed to get into the seed pods themselves, so I suspect it would last several years. But uh, uh, it's very popular with you know some forms of wildlife. So. Uh, can't, I can't really answer that because uh, I've never oh, tried right. saving it for years. But uh, uh, Mother Nature you know, designed those plants to make a lot of seed because obviously a lot of it gets eaten and a uh, small amount is left behind to grow. But it's a beautiful plant, pink flowers, beautiful fall foliage color with yellow and uh, uh, very drought tolerant, it grows wild all over my ranch.
2: Well, when you're starting that in a pot, mm-hmm. as you said, uh, do you have to water that what what would you do? Just set it out, let nature water it or would you no, water I'm,
4: it? I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna keep the soil moist. Worst thing that can happen is you water enough to get it started, then you stop watering, uh, whether it's wildflowers okay. or whether it's Mexican buckeye. Um so once you start watering it you've taken on an obligation to care for it. And I'm just going to keep that soil moist. I'm not going to keep it soggy wet. I'm going to be like nature. I'm going to water it really thoroughly when I water it. And then when it's good and dry on the surface, I'm going to water again. And obviously, once the plant grows, once the plant has foliage on it, it will dry much more quickly. But, uh you know, just going to depend on wind, temperature. Lots of things are going to, you know, determine how quickly that soil dries out. So just stick your finger down there every couple of days. And when it's dry, uh, good and dry on the surface, it's time for another d- dose of water.
2: Okay, and my last question, and this is something I made a goof on. I got some really good, healthy uh chili peking plants, uh-huh, and uh I thought I knew what I was doing, apparently, I did not. I put them into a bigger pot mm-hmm. and they seemed to immediately uh get attacked by grasshoppers and they uh, they've been eaten back good by the grasshoppers. However, the main trunk is is good, and I mean this thing looks like it would make a chili baken tree. Mm-hmm. These two I have, and I know that the pot that I put them in, both of them in are way too small. I moved one of the pots, and the, the roots were coming out, and I just made a mistake on that. And I want to put them in the ground. Is there it any? This uh, well. That's what I was going to ask. Is there is there any on oh, setting out a chili pequin? Is there any uh, advice you have as far as uh, uh, positioning them well uh, in a they... yard or? they they will grow
4: in sun or shade. They grow wild around my place in both places, but they will always produce more peppers in a sunny spot. Now, I would take a knife or something. I would slice down one side of the root ball since they've obviously become very root-bound in those little containers. Just, uh you know, take a... I usually use a sheetrock knife or something like that with a short very strong blade, and uh, I'm just going to rip down one side of the root ball when I set it out. Uh Mulch it. I probably since it's not going to have a long time to get established before winter. Uh, If we get really severe weather, I would cover it. Um, some years mine stay totally evergreen. Some years they freeze to the ground. They always come back. But, uh, that's because they, most of them, you know, they, they've had time to get well established. Uh, they're gonna do much better in the ground than they are in pots. But, you know, planting them here toward the end of September, they're not gonna get a huge root system between now and January. So, if, and I'm not predicting, but if we get really severe cold, uh, I would cover them up this first winter. After that, they'll take it on their own.
2: Well, I sure do appreciate it, and it's, uh, it looks like it's going to be a nice day to get out and do that. It and sure
3: is. And- South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster, News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM One Zero Seven One.
4: All right, let's get back to gardening, straight back to the phone lines, and uh, Judy is up first. Good morning, Judy. Hi, Judy. Hi, um, good morning. I have morning. a question
8: for you. I have a 0, state, I have a zero state, um lawn, and uh-huh. I want to plant a good ground cover. Um, okay. How would even work?
4: Are you looking for what kind of plant to use for a ground cover in a in a xeriscape?
9: Yeah. I I want something to just cover where, where I can not have to worry about the weeds so much.
4: Okay. And does it make any difference to you whether it grows an inch tall or 5 or 6 inches tall?
0: No, makes no difference to me.
4: Well, if you're looking for native plants, and you have to realize that people that want a grass yard would consider them weeds, but for a ground cover in a xeriscape area, there's a real interesting plant, and it's uh, becoming more and more available in the trade. It's called frog fruit uh, I would have to look up the botanical name on that one, but uh okay. it's a, a hardy, you know, it, it grows just absolutely flat on the ground, uh, produces an interesting little flower, and doesn't really have any negative qualities. It's quite tough. It's quite resilient. It's quite drought tolerant. Uh, you know, I don't I don't think deer would eat it I, because I sometimes see it out in my fields as uh, well as different places, but frog fruit would be a... One that would be a good native plant that could be used as a ground cover. Um, there is another fairly low plant that, uh, if people like it, um, they, uh, they call it a, uh, gosh, what's the name I'm looking for? Uh, a form of daisy. If they don't like it, uh, they call it straggler daisy. If they do like it, you know, it's just, it's a pretty little, very tough little woody plant, blooms with lots of yellow flowers, um, and, uh, again, it's, it's very, very dur- durable. It will stand up to drought. It doesn't mind the cold. It loves a sunny spot. It will grow in the shade. It blooms more in the sun. And it's going to be on average probably four or five inches, uh, in thickness. And, uh, it would be a good hardy ground cover. If you were looking for something that was, uh, a little bit taller still. Uh, there is a relatively low native plant called Damianita. Uh, that's the easy name, believe it or not. His botanical name is Chrysectenia But, uh, um it's, you know, it, it's a pretty plant. Very, very aromatic foliage. And, uh, pretty yellow flowers on it. And, uh, it's another one that could be considered a ground cover. If you are looking for more color and willing to at least give it minimal watering, uh, there's a plant which is called Skullcap, Pink Skullcap, Scutellaria. Um, I have some of that places around my landscape and I water it three or four times a year if it needs it. It prefers the sun and it just gives you loads and loads of pink flowers. Fairly long-lived. I've had it in for six or eight years and it's still going strong. Um, there's another ground cover. I don't like the name. Um, they call it dwarf plumbago, but it has no relationship to plumbago. It's, uh, technically, it's, uh, something called ceratostigma. Uh, now it freezes in the winter. It has beautiful fall color and then it goes away totally in the winter months, but it comes back dependably. It's another one that I water two or three times a year. Grow in sun or shade and, uh, beautiful dark blue, cobalt blue flower on it, so Dwarf plumbago is another option. There is one other that I would mention. It's a little shorter-lived, uh, but uh, there's Blackfoot daisy as a melon podium and uh, um, I find on average it lives about three years but it's uh, low growing covers itself with white flowers you see it growing along the roadside so um, those are the main ones that come to herb and oh by the way the I forgot to tell you the common name on uh, the straggler daisy if you like it you call it horse herb if you don't like it you call it straggler daisy but any of those would do what you're looking for to be a super hardy ground cover that's uh, not really, you know, it doesn't have any problems.
8: Okay. Um, would you be able to, like, mix them? Um,
4: you can, but, you know, they are so different. Um, I, I wouldn't, you know, go for too much variety. And, you know, one or the other one, just depending on your situation, there will always be the one that wants to dominate. But, right. um, yeah, I, I, oh, that would be a totally your choice. Uh, I, You know, like well, I mentioned, I have the pink skullcap uh, in my yard, but I have it uh, in an area where I have the taller pink salvia gregii, which is a great uh-huh. zero plant, you know, in the center, and then the skullcap sort of spreads out around the edge. But uh, now okay. you're getting into aesthetics, and I'm not good at aesthetics. I'm not much of a designer, <laughs> but I can tell you everything you want to know about the plants. But those are the ones I would consider the hardiest things for a escape.
8: Okay, and I heard about the sedum, like I said, the, um, is that? Sedum's another choice,
4: yeah, sedum's another choice, and there are a lot of different types of sedum.
8: Yeah, they have a beautiful, uh, like a neon green, mm-hmm. and you can mix yeah. it yeah. with uh, the darker green, okay.
4: Yeah, That's and they have good. another red are one you? they call dragon's blood, so, yeah, well, I hope that gives you a good place to start.
3: South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210 599 5555.
4: Ah, but don't dial right
3: this second because uh, those lines fill up pretty
4: quickly when I get through with one call. (laughs) It's uh, going to fill up again pretty quickly. We're going to talk to Dave and Mark and Glenn and Elizabeth. And Dave is up first. Good morning, Dave. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Uh,
10: your caller, several callers back. If if he really has two acres to treat with compost, uh, the sixty seventy dollar delivery charge is well worth it.
4: Um, <laughs> Amen to that.
10: Um, so I was at the nursery yesterday, and I got three bags of uh, the, the, the cornmeal. And then I came home and measured the area that I, uh, you know, and I thought I'd purchased you know twice as much. And I came home and measured the area, and it's <laughs> thirty seven hundred square feet. So. When it says a bag will cover up to 1,000 square feet, does that mean that if you're going to cover 1,000 squ- square feet, you should use the whole bag?
4: Do you have active brown patch? Are you trying to prevent brown patch? Or what are you using the cornmeal to, uh, for what purpose? I'm trying to prevent it because I did have some last year. Yeah. it. Uh, you know... We put it on about half the rate if we're going to use it on a preventive basis. And, um, you know, it's one of those things where the cornmeal's not the magic. It's the trichoderma that grows on the cornmeal. And you have to expect that when you are Putting out, uh, cornmeal that, you know, the birds are gonna get some of it. If you're out in an area where you have deer, they're, they're actually gonna be trying to lick some of it off the ground. So the exact application rate isn't real critical. And, uh, if it says, you know, you know, 30 pounds for a thousand square feet, doing it approximately, you can spread it a little bit thicker, you can spread it a little bit thinner, and you should still get good results.
10: Does it need to be, uh, you just said, I do have deer, and I'm going to speak to that in a moment. Should I water it down?
4: I would water it down very thoroughly after you put it down. Deer are not as hungry as they were 30 days ago before we had some good rains, but uh, if you just overrun with deer, I'd even consider, uh, you know, soaking the cornmeal in water and then actually, uh, you know, spraying the water around as a means. um, But it's strictly up to you. Again, the deer aren't going to get it all, and you don't live on a golf course. That was one problem we saw, I think it was a golf course in Houston, was having a real bad brown patch problem, as they do with their synthetic chemical fertilizers, and they put out uh, cornmeal, which effectively control the brown patch, but the deer coming in, their little hooves just tore up the greens and did not make any friends that way but uh, um, so yeah I would put it on a little heavier I would definitely water it down good and if your deer tend to come out and eat mainly in the evening put your cornmeal down in the morning and water it good just you want to get as much of it uh, outside of the deer tummy as possible but uh, um, you're going to get good results uh, regardless what you do with it you just want to maximize them
10: I'm at two eighty one and sixteen o four so you know we have the deer problem right there oh yeah um, absolutely uh a year ago, uh speak moving to deer a year ago, I walked out the front door and saw a red bud that had been shredded all the way around with some uh-huh. uh deer in in rut, and you told me how to what slurry to put on it and yeah. and I' talked to you since, and the tree has survived, so uh, thank you for that now I've got those trees wrapped right now, so just some little cedar sticks for a couple more months till the rut's over. But as I was spreading this cornmeal this morning, I walked up to a crepe myrtle that even Mr. Vaughn was impressed with, and it looks like somebody took a utility knife and and about 14 inches of it just scraped it about 18 inches, 20 inches, you know, vertically. I mean, Mm -hmm. the crepe myrtle is not going to – is not in any risk, but, I mean – it looks like a deer did his thing on that tree it has never happened before i mean some of the you know it's are possible
4: it, it's possible it's also possible uh my business partner has a nightly pro- problem with a big porcupine getting up in one of mm. her trees and porcupines are big bark eaters now i'm afraid me i just shoot the blasted thing but uh that's that's not an option will you here, if, if but i
10: do that will you come and visit me
4: <laughs> no but <laughs> anyway but uh there there are lots of different things it it could be deer rubbing on it uh but you know there are, there are a lot more porcupines out there than people realize
10: okay do i need to treat that with a with that slurry
4: or anything it will heal more quickly if you do if it's not girdled all the way around i'm not going right. to tell you it's mandatory but uh um, I would I would treat it.
10: Okay, and what was that combination? I know there were ashes and
11: something else.
4: Oh, ashes and rock phosphate, and there's no exact thing. If you go to Howard Garrett's uh, DirtDoctor.com website and just look at uh, Tree Goop. <laughs> Very descriptive okay. name, but uh, rock phosphate, a little bit of wood ash are the two principal things. I'd have to. I'd have to go back and look it up myself to tell you. I, I, you know, since I put a seven and a half foot fence around my, you know, the bigger yard around my house, I don't worry nearly as much about things getting girdled. Uh, so sure. it's been a while since I had to put the tree goop out. Okay,
10: all right. Well, it'll cover
4: it for today, I believe. Well, you get out and enjoy this beautiful Sunday, Dave, and we'll talk all again. Right. And I'll talk to Mark next. Good morning, Mark.
12: Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Well, we got a nice break here
4: from the summer. <laughs> well, and it looks like I'd like to hope that we are beyond those summertime temperatures. Uh, my forecast, at least, uh showing nothing above the middle 80s for the next 10 days, so I sure hope that materializes. I think Wednesday they're showing the high not getting out of the 60s, but I'll believe that when I see it.
12: Yeah, yeah. We, we actually went nine weeks with no rain. We had like two yep. tenths, and boy, yep. everything was brown. And now... And now the KR blue stem is coming out. It, this stuff pretty much goes dormant when it's that dry. I mean, it looks brown. but it's Oh, it, yeah. There are a lot of native
4: grasses that do. But it's And it's amazing how, you know, less than 24 hours you'll see things start to green up. And uh, right now my ranch has got more lush grass uh um, then you know i've i 've had in a year or two the rains really came at the right time, and you know if you 're doing uh i know you 're not a cattle or horse person, but for folks who are able to do rotational grazing or at least, uh, you know, moving things like my business partner just has a whole separate pasture that she can move all the cows over to and, uh, let the first one recover. So, um, it's, it's rains came at a very, very good time this year. Hopefully we'll get more in the near future because, uh, my meteorologist friends tell me we're moving into, uh, you know, a, a, more of a La Nina pattern where we can expect to be drier over the next six
12: to eight months. All right. Yeah. Uh- well, yeah, we're good for now. Oh, oh, quick thing. A friend on the other side of town had 1.8 inches to start with, and he was digging yeah. post holes, and he went down 18 inches and hit dry dirt. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So, so an inch was about 10 inches into the ground.
4: Yeah. Well, anyway. that just depends on the type. You know, it, we have not yeah. had soil. enough rain in most areas to really soak that subsurface soil, but uh, enough to help the grasses, but we still need more right. to help the trees. Right.
12: So, I got one tough problem and one bad situation here. <laughs> the tough problem we uh we've had two different amp problems to deal with. The first one was the ants in the in the star foam insulation in the patio roof and I think they actually eat the star foam and I kind of got rid of that by drilling holes and injecting some pyrethrum into it. But it well that that's kind of gone away. The one that hasn't gone away We have carpenter ants that are apparently in the walls, and they've Mm -hmm. they've been there for years, and they're they're in the wall by one of our patio doors, and you rarely see them, but some nights they come out of a little hole on the outside, and they're scurrying around the door. Okay, so um, the other thing is in the house, some nights we'll get up in the middle of the night, and there's several dozen scurrying around on the tile floor, and you have no idea where they came in. It turns out our latest dog, there's a couple of places, one in the garage and one in the house, where she just sits and looks at the wall. And we're uh-huh. pretty certain that they're in an interior wall between our utility room and the garage. Mm-hmm. Now, we have no reason to know that other than she stares at the wall.
4: <laughs> well, well, you know, so, there was a pest control company that uh, actually had a beagle that they took around that supposedly could sniff out termites. But I have always been able to eliminate carpenter ants with... Uh, you know, with orange oil and water, but I will tell you, uh, my my business partner and her husband have a travel trailer, and that had some really tough ants. I have no idea what, uh, what kind of ants they were, but they were really hard to get rid of, and uh, she actually, uh, I believe, talked to the people at ABC, I'm not sure, one of the pest control companies, and got a bait that she put out that uh eventually pretty much eliminated them now every carpenter ant problem i've ever had uh fairly concentrated orange oil like 4 ounces uh to the gallon or you know even sometimes i've used as much as 2 ounces in a quart sprayer sprayed around has totally eliminated any carpenter ants i have had uh, i had a friend that had them in wooden shutters on her home and uh she used the orange oil and water uh, later a builder friend convinced her that she needed to call an exterminator who came out and took the shutters off and said, Lady, you don't need me. Whatever you did, you've killed all the ants out. So uh, orange oil and water would sure be the place well, that I would start.
12: There's there's no place on the outside on the ground where we see them. They're strictly in the walls.
4: Well, and, well spray, uh, you know, uh, spray up and down wherever there is a potential... You know, because carpenter ants will come and go. Termites, they you will you will not see how they got in unless they have to cross some concrete, in which case they build one of those little dirt tunnels because yeah. they can't okay. take the low humidity. But uh those carpenter ants are coming and going. I've seen places where people had a tree up against their home and they're going up the tree, out the branch and down, you know, into the woods. So uh mm-hmm i you know i would I would use my pump up mm-hmm. sprayer and I would just you know go uh you know kind of a ten foot radius around any spot that you think they are inside and uh beyond that uh there are I, times that you need an exterminator I try to find one that uses organic products
12: but uh um a f- a friend I, of mine I, well <clears throat> one of the ways I got rid of this stuff in the insulation is uh I actually used an encapsulated pyrethrum spray,
8: mm-hmm. and,
12: yeah. and but a friend of mine drilled holes and put took soda straws, stuck them in a in a, in a container of boric acid, stuck the straw mm-hmm. in the hole, and then used an the air compressor nozzle and blew it into the walls. I, I there's
4: no reason you couldn't do that. You could even do the same thing with diatomaceous earth. I know okay. when Roberta and her husband built their home, uh, before they sheetrocked, uh, she put a good deal of diatomaceous earth into the wall cavities between you know sheetrock uh, in one room and sheetrock in the other. And she had a fraction of the number of scorpions and to this day has had fewer ant problems than anyone I've ever known, but she was able to put that in. And as long as things like boric acid and uh, DE stay dry, you know, they're... The DE, especially, is millions of years old, so it's not ever going to go okay. bad, assuming it stays dry. So, you know, any time I'm going to build okay. a building or, you know, build a, a structure that has an open wall cavity in it, yeah, I'm going to put some yeah. DE in, in there because it's cheap, it's easy, it's non-toxic, and uh, long term it's a lot easier and have to go back and deal with the problem later.
12: So so you would go with the DE instead of the bore and then an interior
4: wall? Um, that's strictly up to you. Okay. Uh, DE I've had good results with, but boric acid is also an effective ant killer. Okay. The nice thing about DE is that if it ever does get wet, it goes back to being very effective when it dries out. Boric acid is highly soluble, and it will turn to a liquid and go away. So hopefully you're never going to have a water issue, but uh, okay. um, either one of them uh, should
12: work fine. Okay. Okay. All right. The other thing is we have a, let's let's say, a bad situation here. <laughs> We're 15 miles west of Fredericksburg, way out in the boonies, mm-hmm. on this really quiet road. With, it used to be like six cars a day went by here. Mm-hmm. A developer from North Carolina acquired 500 acres past us. Mm-hmm. They're putting in cookie-cutter 10-acre lots just past our property.
4: Better than 10 just, houses
12: per acre. We're just, we're just, we're just distraught, <laughs> yeah. and there's nothing we can do about it. It's just, oh God, it's just anyway. So, um so i actually talked to the guy and it, <laughs> the, the, they're anyway um so they put in th- three miles of roads we probably had four to five hundred semis go by here in the last month um doing the road work so they, there's a whole lot of dirt that's exposed and, and i don't think they're going to do anything about it but so there's no hydro mulch but it, as far as putting to stabilizing dirt in the hill country. Should I just call Native American seed, or do you have any ideas on that? If, if that's- well,
4: where you're stabilizing dirt, you know, this uh, erosion matting that uh, you see them use along the highways, it actually has uh, the seed, you know, in built in with a uh, biodegradable, uh, usually oh. some sort of paper product that you literally uh, – you might call Rufus Walker construction specialties. Uh, they may have it here in San Antonio, but um, – if you're really concerned about erosion, you know, if you can guarantee when it's going to rain and it's not going to be a flooding rain, then you can just put the seed out. But if I've got a steep embankment, especially along a roadside, um, that that matting with the seed impregnated into it um, is sure the way to go. And Techshot does it all the time. If you can't find it with Rufus Walker, uh, call Techshot, ask them where they get it.
12: Okay. So Rufus Walkner, that's just R-U-F-U-O-S or
4: whatever? R-U-F-U-S, W-A-L-K-E-R. Okay. I've bought some a lot of different varied things, and and I'm not sure if they have it or not, but they're a great company and awfully nice people to deal with. It would be the first call I make, and if they don't have it, I call Text Dot or Parks and Wildlife, Texas Parks and Wildlife could also probably help you find it.
12: Okay. We have one of the best creeks in Gillespie county that starts right up close to that and that's a big concern for us <laughs> well
4: go buy a lottery ticket say a prayer and hope you win two billion dollars and you can go buy you know every lot within uh, a mile of you at least and uh Jeez. good luck with yeah. it mark i i uh yeah it's yeah. uh not my idea Anybody? but i'd be thankful that it's not you know six houses per acre which is what we're yeah. dealing with in Kendall county so yeah. Yeah. i All wish right. you luck All on right. that and um Very good. Uh, I better get a break in here, and then Glenn and Elizabeth are going to be my next two callers. I get to talk about the Cedar Eater of Texas. And speaking of a good mulch, that's one of the great things about having the Cedar Eater take care of the cedar problem on your property. And if you've got dense cedar, you have a problem, both a fire hazard and the fact that the cedar, ash juniper if you want to call it by its proper name, chokes out the light, absorbs uh, its it's. Needles. Its leaves absorb the first half inch of rain that falls, so it never gets to the ground underneath. And pretty soon, you end up with just bare dirt and a fire hazard growing on top of it. Well, the cedar eater can change all of that very quickly and in a very environmentally friendly fashion with a machine that cuts the cedar off at ground level and grinds it into a nice mulch, all in one operation. Cedar eater does acres and acres. I'm seeing more and more areas around uh, part of Bernie that I travel through. It just it just goes from being a dense fire hazard to a beautiful open lot where he saved the oak trees and the escarpment cherries but turned the cedar into a good mulch. There are places that I've been watching for a couple of years that are now totally covered over with native grass. It's just the environmentally friendly way to take dense cedar and, <laughs> and do away with it. Now, bigger acreage, of course, they could do several acres a day. The bigger the acreage, the lower the cost per acre because it does cost something to move that machine around. But if you're looking for the right way, the environmentally friendly way, the effective way to get rid of the cedar problem, you need to check out the Cedar Eater. There's a North Texas and a South Texas location. You access them both through the same phone number, which is 210 745 2743. That's 210 745 2743 for the Cedar Eater of
3: Texas. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. Alright,
4: back to gardening, straight back to the phone lines. Glenn is up next. Good morning, Glenn. Good
13: morning, sir. Morning. Uh, where can I get some Satsuma orange trees?
4: Um, you can get them most any nursery that normally carries citrus uh we were all the the problem with citrus of any sort is that uh all citrus sold in Texas must be grown in Texas, and there are only a couple of growers and there's about a six month period where there are simply none available. We got several hundred trees in last week. I'm sure Fannix probably did. Rainbow probably did. But uh you're gonna find a pretty good collection of satsumas at uh just about any of your good nurseries now, along with lemons and limes. Uh like I said, we've got the best selection we've had in months. Now I'll tell you there are a lot of people have been waiting for citrus, so I wouldn't put it off too long because it, it may be a while before the next crop mm-hmm. comes along, but I think uh, most of your major nurseries are, are probably pretty well stocked on citrus uh, as of this week.
14: Do you have them at
4: your store? We certainly do.
1: Okay. Uh, By
4: how tall are they? Most of them, I'm going to say, are about four feet. Okay. Now, um, I, Satsumas, okay. I think, are mainly on their standard rootstock. We got a number of trees that are grafted onto a special rootstock called f- Flying Dragon that still gives the big fruit, but it uh, dwarfs the tree. I don't know if we got any Satsumas. I know we got lemons on uh, Flying Dragon rootstock. I just have to go out and take a look out there. But, um, that, that's one option that you, if you have limited space or if you're thinking of growing something in a Container, if it's available, you might look at uh, citrus grow, grafted on flying dragon because it's going to be a more compact plant that still has full size fruit.
3: Okay. Uh, about how much do they cost? You
4: know. Uh, usually, most all of them are grown in about a ten inch pot, and uh, most everything the price is going to be in the forty dollar range.
1: Okay, fantastic. Uh, what can what can we grow in the garden right now?
4: Right now, I you are okay to be planting broccoli and cauliflower and Brussels sprouts and cabbage from seeds. I think we're probably okay to be planting lettuces, and you could plant lettuce as a plant as well. But uh, things you would plant from seed would include radishes and beets and turnips and carrots. Um, it's it's too early for spinach, but really most of our other cool weather crops, uh, chard can certainly go in now, mustard could go in now. Uh, virtually all of those things should do just fine fantastic i appreciate your time as always sir you have a blessed day you do the same glenn it's good to talk to you thank you sir All Right, elizabeth is up next good morning elizabeth
0: yes uh, thank you um thank you for taking my call
4: thank you um, for calling
0: yes um i had purchased some uh basil leaf, uh, basil plants and the leaves uh-huh. were gorgeous and beautiful and i I uh, transplanted them in a bigger pot and um within a few weeks the leaves started um having holes uh-huh. and uh now I've got many holes in the basil leaves and the thing is that I use these leaves to cook but I ha- of course I haven't been cooking with these uh-huh. um whole leaves in there because I don't know what kind of bug is in there. Is there any homemade solution that I could apply? to uh to those leaves so that the the bugs or i I don't know what kind of bug would be eating the leaves but i'm sure they
6: are
4: okay well number one you can you know there's nothing wrong with using those leaves i can promise you restaurants and things making pesto and all don't eliminate every leaf that has been chewed upon but what i'm going to tell you you're really going to need to do is uh, go out at night with a flashlight and see if you can determine because most of the eating goes on you know overnight and uh there are three potential culprits that could be eating your basal leaves uh the first is pill bugs or sow bugs or roly polies whatever you want to call them um if that's what you have there is a non-toxic bait that you can put out called Sluggo Plus and um, uh, you can do that if you want to use you know a different technique uh, if it is uh, the pill bugs, you can take and, you know, dig a small hole and bury a glass, not a plastic, but a, a glass jar down in where only the rim's exposed. Put a piece of lettuce, put a piece of apple in there. The pill bugs crawl over the edge by the hundreds and they can't get out. And then periodically you just take your jar and go dump it in a bucket of soapy water or whatever and be rid of it. So if it's pill bugs, either the, uh, uh, Slugo plus or a little pill bug trap the second culprit uh, would be a black beetle usually a shiny black beetle uh, there are lots of different kinds of beetles i love charles darwin co- darwin's comment uh, 150 years ago he said the good lord must have had an inordinate fondness of beetles because he made so many of them so uh, there are some beetles that will eat on your basil. if those are the culprits, there is a product called Spinosad, S-P-I-N-O-S-A-D, Spinosad soap, that will safely take care of them, and you can just rinse your leaves. It's non-toxic to people and pets, Um, but uh, the Spinosad soap would be my solution if it uh, is, is some sort of beetle. The third possibility is a little caterpillar. And, uh, by the way, the beetles will normally just eat anywhere on the leaf. The caterpillars usually eat from the edge in. But there's a little green caterpillar that uh will, actually there's several kinds of caterpillars that are quite frequently found eating basil leaves. There is a non-toxic product that contains something called BT. B is in boy, T is in tom, uh, stands for Bacillus thuringiensis. BT, again, is a, is a safe natural product that kills caterpillars. It's harmless to people and pets. Again, you would just rinse your basil before you use it for culinary purposes. So, uh, it's bound to be one of those three things. I guess I should throw grasshoppers in, but grasshoppers you would almost certainly see because they're active during the day. But uh, your three nighttime marauders are going to be the pill bugs, the beetles, and the caterpillars, and your choice of safe products to control them will just depend on which it is. So, what you need to do is go out at night with a flashlight, and I think you'll pretty soon be pretty quick to be able to tell what your uh, who's doing the damage to your basil.
0: Well, thank you, thank you very much. And the same thing would apply to all the other plants, all the other herbs that I have, or that's just uh, it only likes basil.
4: Um, basil, if if you had 15 herbs out in the garden, basil would probably be the first thing <laughs> they would go to yeah. <laughs> with a possible, uh, there's a plant, uh, marigold is often grown as a tarragon substitute and, uh, it's fairly attractive, but, uh, oddly enough, a lot of, uh, very aromatic plants, uh, tend to repel both, uh, uh, insect pest and, you know, little furry creatures as well. But basil, everybody seems to like basil. So yeah, that's, that's the most common thing. Uh, the controls are the same for, uh, pill bugs and other things. I guess the one other thing that you would rarely see on basil, but occasionally on rosemary, uh, occasionally on uh, some of the other things, I will see spider mites, which we control with liquid seaweed. But uh, generally speaking, if something's not nibbling on your herbs, it's going to be one of those three that we just talked about.
0: All right. I will try that. All right. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time.
4: And if you're not sure what you've got, you know, try to capture one. Put a little Ziploc bag and take by a good nursery that will... Uh, uh, hopefully somebody that does organics and they can tell you how to safely control it. But my bet is going to be on pill bugs or caterpillars. Those are the two most common, and uh that's what I find on my own basil periodically. So uh you call me back if you have any questions. I will certainly look forward to helping you. Uh Carolyn and Wayne are my next two callers, but I need to, first of all, pause and talk about green grow organics. And if you're fighting some pesky creatures out in the landscape and you don't want to deal with it yourself, and yet you don't want to call one of these companies that's going to try to sign you up for a long-term contract for them to come around and spray who knows what. That's not what you want to do. If you want to call Sam Sitterly with the Green Grow Organics, because there is no long-term contract, you are never going to get a toxic chemical spray because everything Sam does is organic. And with about 30 years in the business, he knows what he's doing. He's seen, I guess, every type of bug, every type of problem that could show up in South Texas. And uh, he specializes. In, well, just in natural controls, whether it's an insect, whether it's a disease, or whether it's simply by providing basic nutrition to your plants. The company is called Green Grow Organics, and, uh, you know, he will do as much or as little as you need. Uh, just very, very flexible and uh, very knowledgeable, very, very efficient. So if you're fighting any of those things, or if you just know that you're too busy to get around to doing the fertilizer application, the pre-emergent weed control or whatever, why don't you give them a call? Again, everything they do is organic, and there's no long-term obligation. Check out his website at GreenGrowOrganics.com, and when you're ready for that free consultation, just give him a call. 210-275-8200, I believe is the number. Sam Sitterly and Green Grow Organics.
3: South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster, News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back
4: to gardening on this beautiful Sunday morning. It's going to be Carolyn and Wayne and Debbie and Ron. Carolyn's up first. Good morning. Good morning
15: from Fort Worth. It's gorgeous here, too, today. Oh, listen, this is is the reason
4: we live in this part of Texas.
15: (laughs) Right. Well, I do have a problem that's cropped up. I've planted my Brussels sprouts, and it seems as though they have leaf miners. And I'm losing leaves to that, and I'm wondering how to get rid of them, okay?
4: Well, there's not a good way. Normally, leaf miners are cosmetic more than they are damaging. Probably the most important thing is, you know, dispose of those leaves. If you see a leaf that has obvious leaf miner damage, um, then, you know, take it off and seal it up in a bag and get rid of it because there's a little insect tunneling around eventually it you know makes a hole drops out of the leaf into the soil and goes through its life cycle comes back and lays eggs to create more leaf miners but uh, vegetable leaf miners rarely really do a whole lot of uh, physical damage they make little <laughs> like little road maps through the leaves on uh, broccoli and cauliflower and Brussels sprouts and other things but because you know they are inside the leaf there's really not a safe spray that you can put on them that wouldn't get into the portion that you want to eat so i guess the good news is that they're really not terribly damaging the bad news is there's not a lot to do about them
15: Oh, so beneficial nematodes wouldn't kill the, the things in the ground around
4: them? No. Um, it would reduce the number that you had in the ground, but it won't take the care of the ones in the plant. Now, no, I, I, I
15: just want to get rid of the ones in the ground. Uh, oh, yeah. I,
4: well, then in that case, beneficial nematodes would certainly be the way to go certainly be those the, way the to guardian
15: go. patrol would work would that guardian yes patrol work? guardian
4: lawn patrol is going to be guardian lawn patrol is a blend of course of several nematode species and that would be right. the best way to go after them yeah
15: well it's I real interesting mm-hmm. go ahead
4: um, there is actually a little wasp and years ago um uh the Disney folks over at Epcot actually produced a video if there's a little wasp that may show up in your garden, tiny little non stinging thing that walks back and forth and back and forth and back and forth on the leaf, trying to determine exactly where the leaf miner is, then it actually sticks its rear end it's called its ovipositor into the into that spot, lays an egg into the leaf miner which then turns into another little wasp and uh over at epcot in florida at one point they had a bad outbreak of leaf miners they actually controlled them by collecting the larvae of these little wasps and releasing them wherever they found a problem i don't think that those wasps are commercially available, but it's one more reason to stay organic, as I know you always do, because uh, there are some natural things that will take care of the leaf miners. So you do your part with the nematodes in the soil, and hopefully you have some little wasps show up to start taking out some of the uh, leaf miners in the leaves.
15: Oh Well, my son in uh, Houston was here, and he said Mm -hmm. he's got a lot of leaf miners, too. And I said, I think that the beneficial nematodes would take care of it, but but um, I wasn't sure that I was going to try to call you. And, well, uh,
4: I'm I'm glad you did, but they should totally take care of the larval state in the soil.
15: Okay, and I think you said last week it would take care of a lot of the, the beetle uh, grubs that are going yes. to be uh, overwintering, yes. Okay, oh, and abs- the other thing on Brussels sprouts, uh, he said, boy, do the Brussels sprouts grow good in Houston, and I'm going, well, I thought it was, might be too hot there. And he said, well, they've got a uh, – and, and I did read on the Internet that they like an acidic soil, so I was going to ask you how you would go about making the soil a little more acidic here.
4: Mm-hmm. Add more compost. Uh, compost Add is more full compost. of – compost. Yeah, humic acids. Um, if you want to go with a direct product, uh, liquid humates uh, will –
15: Liquid humate put, will work? Yeah,
4: liquid humate said? or dry humate, either one. Um, okay. And it – yeah it will don't don't necessarily go by the ph of the soil but uh the Mm -hmm. amount of organic material and the amount of humic acid is what will benefit your plants and uh uh, if you feel like you need to increase that uh, liquid humate, you probably get it under the Medina label or dry humates. Either one would be the best way to go. Okay, and I agree with you. I I would be surprised if they, you know, a lot of people have just never had really good Brussels sprouts that make the little real tight head. You pretty much have to have a a, a chillier winter to do that. So I'm surprised that he feels like he grows good Brussels sprouts in Houston, but (laughs) I I hate to say it. He he may just not know what a really good one looks like. What's that?
15: Yeah, he said a neighbor did. He said those plants were tall, and they were full of Brussels sprouts, and they put these pine needles around them. And so that that acidifies the soil. Mm -hmm.
4: Uh, Just to a very, very slight degree. Oh, your problem okay. in Fort Worth, like my problem in the hill country, is just every time we water, we're putting very alkaline water on. So uh, the people that go to trying to use chemicals or trying to use some other things are just it's sort of self-defeating. When you increase your organic material in the soil, you're naturally increasing the humic acids there, and it makes it possible to grow a lot of things a whole lot better. But uh To grow really tight heads on the Brussels sprouts, you need that chilly weather and so uh uh you have a better chance of it in Fort Worth than I do you know in San Antonio area, and we have a better chance of it than uh, they do in Houston simply because of the temperatures we normally have in the winter time but uh give it a try, I'll be interested to know how they do for you
15: okay, and what about uh i I did go to the internet and I saw how to acidify soil, and they have things that you can buy at at places uh Packages of stuff to acidify will will that help? Mm-hmm. Because uh, and then another one said suggested putting uh, vinegar in a gallon of water and watering the plant with the with some vinegar water if that would help. Because
4: if you, you know. if you did a very dilute vinegar solution that would be good. If you did strong vinegar solution, you would kill things. But uh, okay. I would always use the apple cider vinegar. That's ice uh, Yeah, a small amount, like a tablespoon per gallon, will benefit your plants, but I'm not going to tell you it's going to change the pH a whole lot. If you're really going to change the pH, you're probably going to use phosphoric acid, but uh, you have to be very careful with it, and it's a very temporary solution because, like I say, every time you water, you're putting alkaline water on that is going to neutralize a sure. chemical product, whereas a natural product like uh, humic acid, there are actually probably 100,000 different humic acids. They are not nearly as easily neutralized as a chemical acidifier would be.
15: So if I buy some humate, uh, put it around each plant.
4: Uh, or over the whole garden, it's inexpensive. And well, uh, I, sometimes... I had
15: I had mulch delivered this this mm-hmm. week. There's a place uh-huh. here that makes really good mulch. I, I use the uh, you know the cow manure one, the, the organic. Uh, um, yeah. You know. Yeah. Get, mm-hmm. But I just got regular, uh, not mulch, excuse me, uh, compost. I said mulch, right. but I meant compost. I use the composted manure on my lawn. But uh, I got just plain uh, compost, organic compost. And what happened is it doesn't smell good. It smells like a petroleum product. It stinks. <laughs> so I know well, it's not completely finished yet, so I'm not going to plant my garlic or anything in there till I feel like it's ready.
4: Well, you can do that. And if you want to get a little Medina Plus or Medina Soil Activator and spray, it will take care of the odor pretty quickly and oh. uh, will help help uh get it finished uh i know uh the owner of uh medina <laughs> had a problem with a uh, uh with someone in politics shall we say that put out one of their good fertilizers uh the day he was going to have a gathering in his yard and was calling in a horrible panic saying what am i going to do actually it was a day before and Stewart told me, Well, I'll spray with Medina Plus, and the odor will go away fairly quickly. So that it it will very definitely help. It might not do it overnight, but it will it will it works really well against odor uh, well, odors I, I like that."
15: It, I sprayed it. with molasses yesterday. Yeah, well, that's good. Of, oh, okay. I thought maybe that would help get some worms and break it down a little bit. You know, uh,
4: that will so. very definitely help. But if you feel like you need to speed it up, uh, uh, get some Medina Plus and use that as well.
15: Oh, okay, okay. So, so anyway, I uh, I don't have to. I'm gonna order the beneficial nematodes. I order them from Hydro Gardens. Is where I, yep. where I order them. Best
4: from. company in the and country.
15: We, yeah, and I can't get them here for sure. Well, you can't get anything organic here, hardly <laughs> at all. So that's just the way. It <laughs> well, is. good luck with the be. Carolyn.
4: It's good to, good okay,
3: to hear well, from thank you, you thank and you, uh, you have a good weekend up
4: in Fort Worth,
3: you. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550, KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to
4: gardening and back to the phone lines. It's going to be Wayne and Debbie and Ron and Omar, and Wayne is up first. Good morning,
7: Wayne. Good morning, Bob. I got a question about uh, uh, some decomposing material that I've got. I've got access to a pretty good chunk of river bottom property that's got a lot okay. of old dead trees and, uh-huh. Stuff that's rotting around and, uh, I've been thinking about, you know, how I could kind of clear out from underneath there. And I thought, well, shoot, I could probably take some of that stuff, I think, and pile it up and, and, uh, probably come up with a pretty good little, uh, uh compost pile. Is that, is there any danger to that?
4: None whatsoever um would be nice to have a you know combination of things and if there's any way that you can break it up so to speak uh of course you know decomposing the more surface area you have for the microbes to work on the more quickly things will break down and go from being what you think of as a mulch to a compost material but uh if there's any way to shred it if there's any way to you know chip it up it would make you know, a better material more quickly but uh, that's what Mother Nature's been doing for a few million years <laughs> so uh, well, uh, it, just, it's a
7: good plan Sure, I, I just wanted to, I mean it, it, a lot of it is already kind of crumbly because it's yeah. just been sitting down there underneath the underneath the trees for a long time in a good moist yeah. environment and I'm just thinking about loading it up on the front end loader and putting it over where I want to start uh, building the compost pile so I, I just
4: that would be a great plan. I, you know, try not to get too much of the soil in with it because that alluvial soil that, you know, kind of silts in that comes in around the river bottoms is not always the, the best soil because sometimes it's awfully tight. But as far as gathering up the organic material that's gathered and started to break down, no, it's uh, it's free material and you might as well make good use of it. Absolutely.
7: All right. Well, I appreciate. It. I just want to make sure there wasn't any danger of pathogens or something like that but i kind of figured based on what i've been listening to you that it was it made good sense to do it that way just oh, yeah. because you can you, you've got all the bugs there already so well uh, and yeah. and
4: yeah it's it's a good plan do keep in mind that that's the kind of area that poison ivy loves to grow and while the <laughs> toxin in it you know breaks down uh you want to be careful if you get any green in there, I know uh, of a lady one time that got the you know free mulch out at the the brush dump uh, in the city, and they had chipped up or had ground up a bunch of poison ivy, fresh, into some very fresh mulch. So. Uh, I'd wear some good gloves when you're handling it, and keep your eye out for that. But uh, other than that, I that and the occasional uh, copperhead or whatever <laughs> it might be mixed in there, uh, it sounds like you got a good plan going, and there's nothing at all wrong with that.
7: Good deal. Well, the other qu- i got one other quick question. Uh, I, I've, I've been studying a lot on uh, propagating with cuttings, and uh, uh-huh. I know you've talked about several. Uh, there's a lot of things on the Internet that says mix peat moss and perlite. And I know you talk about perlite. It's straight how do you perlite's know when, all you uh, need. Well, how do you know whenever you... Uh, uh, you, you get them. You get them growing in perlite, and you see the roots. I mean, do you plant do You transplant them immediately into into another pot. That's or that's up them?
4: to I you. You could you could leave them in perlite indefinitely. You would need to start fertilizing so the plants could grow in a healthy fashion. But once the plant has started to make roots, once it has initiated root development. Uh, at that point it can go into soil immediately or it can stay, you know, in the perlite a longer time. But once it started to make roots, then you've passed that, that time frame where it might, you know, want to decompose rather than root. Once the root started, it's ready to go into soil, but it can stay in the perlite for six months as long as you started adding some nutrient material to it.
7: When you went, the nutrient material you talk about the I guess the fertilizer, it's your yeah. good organic yeah. fertilizer, Yeah, has fertilizer. to roll
4: li- has to roll plant is the liquid that I use if something's gonna be in perlite for a longer period of time.
7: Oh, you use a liquid, not a not a granular.
4: Absolutely. In perlite uh liquid would be much faster acting, much better. Okay.
7: All right. Well that's what I need to know,
4: Bob. I sure appreciate it. Love the show. I appreciate the call, and I thank you most kindly, Wayne. And let's see if we can get Debbie in here before the news. Good morning, Debbie.
9: Good morning. How are you, Bob?
4: I'm good. How are you today?
9: Doing well, thank you. Excellent. I'll be very quick. Um, up until last spring, my front yard was amazing. It was green at St. Augustine. It was green and gorgeous. Then um, come October, November of last year, I developed brown patch. Okay. And um so I put cornmeal down everywhere. It obviously was very late in the season, so I had to wait until spring. And um spring came, and the grass grew back beautifully. It was lovely. And then as soon as it started getting warmer, the brown started coming back. So I put cornmeal down again, and uh, I put beneficial nematodes down as well. And it just seemed to progressively get worse and worse and worse. And um, so then I saw an armadillo in my yard, thinking he uh-huh. was digging up grubs. I put more nematodes down, more and two applications of growing green, um, uh-huh. more cornmeal, and, and it still just looks so bad. Well, <laughs> I don't
4: what, know what, what happens, and, and I'm getting a little short on time, but... What happens with grubworm damage is there is a lot of damage done before it starts to show up. Uh, it's very important that you get those nematodes down, you know, before the damage really appears. When you start seeing the June bugs, that's the time to get your nematodes out because, uh, like I say, if, uh, by the time you start having grass turn brown, you've already lost a lot of grass roots, and it's going to take a long time for it to turn around, and it will always look worse before it looks better so i think you were probably just a little late in uh, you know in controlling the problem and now the grass simply needs to regrow i doubt that you need to do
3: really anything else if you want to hold on we can talk a little bit more I've- south texas gardening with bob webster is on the air talk to bob now 210-599-5555 All right. We're
4: going to talk a little more with Debbie, and then it will be Ron and Omar and Jenny. So back to those phone lines, Debbie, and uh, uh, back to the grass problem.
9: Okay. So um, I I get what you're saying. I was probably too late on the nematodes. But at this point, um, half the grass has become like a really light green, almost yellow. Mm -hmm. And so um, does that mean that that's going to die too?
4: (laughs) no not necessarily how long has it been since you put your fertilizer on
9: um the first time it was probably july and then okay. i did it again late august
4: okay so you're you're set on that things just don't happen you know instantly um on this and like i say that grass has got to get some new roots down The yellowing, the light color is probably... Not the fact that there they're not nutrients there, but simply that the grass doesn't have the active roots to you know take up the nutrient at this point, if I was going to do anything, I would put a thin layer of compost and I mean just you know sixteenth of an inch or an eighth of an inch of compost over the area that will bring in an increased uh, bunch of microbial activity, which in turn tends to help the grass process the material and help it green up more quickly but I really don't think there's anything else you really need to add now um if you have grass you know that starts you know how you can tell if you have brown patch when you when you have a grass blade that starts to turn brown you lift up on it and it separates away from the runner and looks kind of watery and rotten down at the base if you Mm -hmm. should see any of that i might consider an application of cornmeal either dry cornmeal or Cornwater water tea but at this point uh maybe a little bit of compost and some time i think is all you really need but do be vigilant this next spring and the day you start seeing june bugs around your porch light get out there with those nematodes because if you wait until the damage starts to show up uh there's a lot more damage that's been done and you'll things will get a whole lot worse before they start getting better
9: Okay, I have had pretty good luck with the happy frog soil revitalizer. Should I put that down or just a straight compost?
4: Um either one, I think either one's gonna work very well for you, okay,
9: okay, and it just seems like it always comes back in the exact same spot. So is there some preventative thing I should be doing?
4: now, if it's coming back in the same spot, it probably is more. Either a brown patch issue or else it's just an area where your yard has really shallow soils. Uh, are you here in San Antonio? Yes. Okay, um, we have both the problem in some areas of having rock that may be in a very, you know, very much closer to the surface and we also have an issue with uh, what are called domes of caliche where if you could take a cross section through the soil, you'd see where this big mass of caliche has come up much closer to the surface. A lot of times, I don't spend a lot of time on roofs, other greenhouse roofs anymore, but I got to where you could get up on a roof and look down, and you could just pick out areas of the yard where there would be a given patch that was always you know, a little less thrifty, as they say, a little bit more yellow. And if you go out and dig down, you'd find either that the soil was just much more shallow there or else there was a big dome of caliche right directly underneath it. I know Howard Garrett actually took an old golf club and sharpened uh, the shaft off of a uh, golf club and sharpened it and he would go down and probe down into the soil with that and you might try that Uh, and you know sometimes uh, you will find that it's a it, it's just a, a big rock, a rock that you could actually dig out and get rid of um, and sometimes you know that that's just not practical but my guess is that it's just an area where you've got a lot more shallow soil uh, you can compensate for that if you you know get a little more water on it somehow which means getting out with a hose uh, and just supplementing the water but when you have when you have a problem reappearing in the same area a lot of times it's it's something going on just below the surface, and it would be interesting just to dig a little small hole down and see what you find sometime.
9: Okay. Okay, very good. Thank you so much for your help.
4: Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure, Debbie. Get out and have a good Sunday, and uh, we'll move on and talk to Ron. Good morning, Ron. Good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm great. This going to be a beautiful day out there. It <laughs> it's just going nice. to be too short. I've got, I've got more to do today than I'm ever going to get accomplished.
11: Well, this is this is great uh, weather, Bart. It. It's like, I think it was like 62 degrees when I first went yeah. out this morning.
4: Yeah, I had 58 in Bernie when I left.
11: Yeah, that's nice. I'm, I've been waiting for this cooler temperature for so long.
4: <laughs> you and a couple of million other people.
11: Yeah, had enough of that other stuff. Yeah. Okay, I think you answered some questions uh, from the lady you just spoke to, but I I think I'm just about getting ready to have to deal with the brown patch again. i got an area that probably about 20 by 25 feet or so that I deal with every year. And I think I'm behind the ball. But let me ask you about a product that I've used in the past. I'm probably going to need to change over to really stick to your plan. But it's a Consen 20 uh, fungicide. Uh Right. you familiar with that?
4: Yes, and it's not a bad product. It's not really organic, but it's not a toxic chemical like so many of the other fungicides are um, one of the problems with it is it's not at all long lasting it's not something that I really recommend but again it's compared to you know a lot of the other products that are out there uh if you're going to use something that is synthetically derived, it's one of the ones that's not so bad but what I love about you know going with the cornmeal, which grows the beneficial fungus called trichoderma, is that that is long lasting and you'll take care of a lot of other potential problems even even including oak wilt so um i I think it's a better application and if you prefer to use a liquid, uh, which we often do in uh, treating and preventing oak wilt, you can just soak your cornmeal overnight in a bucket of water and then apply that liquid. And I think you'd find it to be as or more effective than your consan and certainly certainly no negatives to a corn water tea solution and much longer lasting.
11: Yeah, I think I'm going to start... uh taking you up on that after I get rid of this here. I have uh, talked to you before, and I'm doing some. Uh, I'm going to be doing some cleaning out of some of my plants. I've, I've talked to you before about my uh, chili patines and the big pots yeah. and pretty good-sized plants, but I'm going to go through there and, and clean out the, the roots and stuff. Sure. Uh, but I did buy the sea, the uh, liquid seaweed and uh, the uh, liquid molasses by Medina. Uh-huh. And get ready to get out. I guess is this okay at time to do that, or should I wait to spring to really clean oh, that no. all out and cut? No,
4: uh, especially with your liquid seaweed, you'll make things uh, more cold hardy. Uh, you'll actually add about five degrees to. uh um, you know, the cold hardiness of your plants if you spray with some regularity using liquid seaweed in the fall. And this is a perfect time to begin that, not just on your, uh, on your chili pekines, but if you've got any tomatoes that you want to try to get to hang on a little bit longer or any flowers out there like begonias or periwinkles, uh, they will all benefit and will all last later into the fall with an occasional seaweed application. Uh, and I like the molasses seaweed combination. We do about two, two tablespoons liquid seaweed, one tablespoon of molasses. To a gallon of water, and uh, that's just a great fall tonic to both keep things healthy through the fall and to increase your cold hardiness.
11: Okay, so clean up the roots now. That's okay, but as far as these guys are a good five foot tall, probably mm-hmm. uh, leave that along till spring.
4: And that's up to you. Um, I would not cut it back severely. Mother Nature may decide this winter to she will freeze back a portion of it, but my time for doing most of that type of pruning. is going to be late February or early March is probably the best time.
11: Yeah, that's what I was planning on. But you're saying I can go ahead and do the roots now to clean them up a bit.
4: I think I will now use
11: uh, this Medina, these products. uh, One need to get after that. try to get those things a little healthier. Well,
4: just keep in mind there are many things that we really do as a soil drench, such as the liquid fertilizers, but things like your molasses and liquid seaweed are probably better applied as a foliar spray. So uh, get out your sprayer and get with it. You're going to make things uh, better than they've ever been.
11: Yeah, well, I'm going to be ready. Okay, just uh, one other (laughs) thing, I believe it is. Well, let me ask, on the molasses, now I have the liquid, you know, about that... Uh, for what I'm doing here, but as far as if I'm going to, should I be trying to use uh, like uh, that powdered mo- molasses in the yard?
4: Well, it's it's not powdered molasses. They call it dry molasses, but it is not molasses that, you know, will dissolve or, you know, go back to being molasses. All it is is usually ground-up corn cobs or ground-up sorghum or sometimes ground-up alfalfa that has just been, been sprayed with molasses, so you've just got a substrate that is, you know, absorbent. That's not, do not think that will ever dissolve. Uh, People should know better. The guy that actually sold me my Continental Belt and Sprayer, which is what I use for spraying acreage, uh, he decided he was going to put out uh, molasses that way. He dumped about forty pounds of dry molasses into his spray tank and spent three days trying to get the nozzles unclogged and everything uh-huh. else. So, so dry molasses is convenient because it doesn't require a sprayer. In fact, you can put it out with fertilizer spreader if you like. But uh, it is not something that it's not like a crystalline material. It's just simply a uh, dry substrate that's been soaked with molasses. And okay. if you buy drive molasses i sure recommend the brand called nature's creation because i don't know what magic they've used but theirs does not clump and get hard Many brands of dry molasses that I've used in the past, if they sit in the bag, especially if they got exposed to any humidity, they would turn to the hardest rock. I swear you could build a dam out of that stuff. <laughs> um, so go with uh, go with the Nature's Creation brand because uh, they've done something to it where it does stay. Uh, it, it doesn't clump or get hard the way so many others do.
11: Well, I need to check on that because that, this was, was at a feed store, and they had it in the bag. And I didn't really check out the name of it, but I'll look back <laughs> into that. One last thing: this is going to be a little odd. Uh, I've had a, I've got a, a great plant. It looks like that I've had for goodness six or seven years. That uh, the birds dropped into the yard and started growing. I put it in a pot, and it does. it been mean, really doing well as far as putting producing leaves, and uh, uh-huh. it goes across my uh, privacy fence in the back, and it's probably a twenty-five, thirty-foot span. You know, as it takes off, bees mm-hmm. out. Uh, and it's really nice; I love it. But this thing has never produced uh, a grape one. And the neighbor, a neighbor of mine, he and I looked into this, and it's we believe it's called Sweet Mountain Grape. Uh, okay. And I guess the what do we call the biological name or what is Vitis or V I T I S Ponticola? Yep. Okay. Does That sound like a grape to you?
4: <laughs> uh, well, Vitis is the genus for grapes in general. Now. Uh, a small sweet grape in this area uh, is more likely black Spanish but uh, the science is called etiology, and there are grape specialists that can look at a leaf and get a pretty good idea of the variety. I am not one of them. <laughs> so, you, you might look around if you, if you know anybody around the area that makes wine, they have clubs and things, right. and, uh, they might be able to look at a leaf and give you an idea. But I'll tell you, if you're wanting to increase production for, from just about any kind of grape, thin it out pretty heavily over the winter months. Um and you know, but uh, up I like to they expenses. do out
11: in the the vine the, the yeah yeah
4: they take out up to eighty percent of the growth, and the growth that's left will tend to produce uh grapes and tend to produce good quality grapes, so that is one thing I would try. It takes several years for a grape grown from seed to mature, so it could be that your plant is just not mature yet, but thinning it out over the winter months will give you a better chance for getting good grapes and I did want to back up to the dry molasses question okay. one more time um you know when you go to the feed store, if you're planning on putting it out. Today, If they've got a good deal going, if they've got a good price on it, uh, you know, go for it. Because dry molasses is pretty much dry molasses if you use it immediately. But if it's going to be stored for any length of time, like Uh, I say, then I would absolutely look for the Nature's Creation. But uh, if you're planning on getting it in the morning, putting it out in the afternoon, you can go with whatever you like. Just don't try to keep it unless it's a Nature's Creation product.
11: No, I think I'm going to hold off and uh, find what you told me to get. Very good. All right, I appreciate
4: it, Bob. You're certainly welcome. It's good to talk to you. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. All right. Uh guess I better get a break in here. Omar will be up next, and it'll be Jenny and Thomas. And uh, I get to talk about friends over at uh, Fanix Nursery and Garden Center. And, uh, you know, Fanix has gotten, oh gosh, just a lot of new things in. They've just gotten in a lot of their – uh uh, berry plants, uh, blueberries. If you want to experiment, they've gotten blackberry plants in. They've also gotten some peach and plum and pear trees in as well. And uh, of course, Fanix just always has <laughs> just a bit of everything. Fanix has been around for over 80 years, right in this uh, same area. And you know, when you're uh, when you're dealing with somebody who's been doing it for 80 years, the same family, you know that you uh, you're going to get people that know plants and what I always say about mark and mike is they're true plantsmen they're not into it just because it's a business but they're into it because they truly you know truly love plants and love to help people grow things better fanix has uh lots of other good things they're getting in now they've got a good selection of vegetable plants have just come in your cool weather vegetables and of course all the organic things we talk about with good fertilizers from medina and maestro grow and fox farms they've got the mulches and the compost uh, just a great time to get by and see the folks over at Fanix, right over there on Home Green Road, right where they've been for 80 years now. Check out their Traeger pellet grills, too. Check out their new eco-lawn uh, battery-powered lithium-ion battery-powered lawn equipment. Always something new and something neat going on
3: over at Fanix. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster, News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 107.1. All right,
4: back to gardening and back to the phone lines. It's going to be Omar and Jenny and Thomas and Austin. Omar is next. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm good. Who could be otherwise on a morning this pretty?
13: Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) I've got a lot, so I'll be quick. Uh, The liquid seaweed ratio and molasses, would that apply to a Mexican lime tree as well?
4: Oh, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It it, okay. it is a beneficial. At last count I think they had identified almost a hundred different beneficial compounds in liquid seaweed. The uh you know the the kelps, especially the cold water kelps, selectively pull out a lot of the really beneficial things out of seaweed and concentrate in their leaves and uh that's what you're getting. They're different processes they use to liquefy it, but uh it's good for everything that grows.
13: Okay, and uh, that same lime tree, it, it's an overproducing little thing, and and I need to trim it back because uh, I have I have never trimmed it back. It's been in the ground about seven eight years, and it's getting too big to cover. As far as trimming wise, just pick a limb and get it, or I mean, is there any is it you know is there any special way to do it?
4: Well, on really on all citrus, I like to prune them when they're in flower in the spring. Now, that doesn't help you much this fall with the covering, but um, you never know which limbs are going to have the most limes and which limbs are not. If you prune while it's in bloom, you can take out the limbs uh, with the fewest blooms, leave the ones with the most blooms, and that way you'll maximize your crop but um as far as the tree goes you're just cosmetic when it comes down to shape it however you like but uh for maximizing citrus or production on citrus uh i like to prune while it's in bloom
13: okay. do i need to paint the wounds
4: no no it's okay. that that'd be detrimental actually
13: okay gotcha and uh have you ever heard of great tail grackles eating? I've got, I'm looking across the house pasture right now, and I've got numbers like Alfred Hitchcock's, the movie, uh, mm-hmm. the birds, I mean. And they're yep. swooping down just in the middle of the pasture, and we're we're heavy in army worms right now, and I'm just, I'm guessing that's what they're doing. Is that, is that, it's
4: either that or grasshoppers. It could be could be army worms, could be grasshoppers. I was shredding a field one time, and, um I mean, the grasshoppers were so thick, I was wearing a, a face mask because just they were, you know, hitting me in the face when I was going through it. Mm-hmm. There was a big old flight of those boat-tailed grackles came in and landed in the little adjacent pasture. And when I finished the field, I was in and moved over to that other, and there was not a grasshopper to be seen. So oh, wow. the, they're, they're big insect eaters, and... Uh, <laughs> kind of obnoxious, and we've got way too many of them. Yeah, but uh, they do some good out in the country, and uh, yeah, I'm sure they're they're probably going after the caterpillars and uh, grasshoppers. Have been pretty thick this summer, and they may still be finding some of those are going after as well.
13: Yeah, they're they're doing. I'm looking at a huge huge number of them right now. Oh, um, yeah. Mariana's peace tomato plants are. You know, the first time I've done them, they're doing really really well. No no flowers good. yet, but they're they're getting size. And got I hope you let me know how they
4: do this fall and how productive yeah,
13: they are. I sure will. And I've got a potential oak tree transplant. I think I may have brought this up years ago. My mother lives in town, and she's got a oak tree that is growing straight up, and it's about 11 foot tall, and it's in the corner. So it's not like I can dig around it even, you know, two foot. And mm-hmm. best time to try that, do you what?
4: Uh, I always say between Thanksgiving and Valentine's. Okay. okay. Now, is it up against foundation of the house or is it in out in the corner of the yard?
13: No, it's out in the corner of the yard, right? It's okay. very, uh an anaqua an tree is, is, is covering it or it's growing through sure. the anaqua tree uh, uh branches uh, but, okay. uh, it, it, i
4: almost almost wish it was up against the house because then you would know there weren't any roots underneath there and the the area you are able to dig you'd be get more of the root system but where it's just out in the yeah. yard those roots are going out in all directions so uh you just get the biggest root ball on as you can but uh yeah, any time when the other trees have dropped their leaves, that's gonna be your best time to do your transplanting on a woody plant like that. And um okay. there, there are various things after you transplant it, wetting down that bark, you know, several times a day will help. Um, if you're forced to do it when the weather's a little bit warmer, I think you can probably still find a product. You might have to go online to get it, but, uh, uh, there's something called wilt proof. It's an anti-transparent, uh, that sometimes people use when they have to transplant things in hot weather that, uh, cut down on water loss and increase your chances of success. But, uh, most important thing is the time of year, and we're coming up on that time of year.
13: Gotcha. All righty, sir. Well, I sure appreciate it.
4: I always appreciate your call, Omar. Get out and have a great Sunday, and uh, we'll move on next and talk to Jenny. Good morning, Jenny.
6: Good morning, Bob.
4: Good morning. My
6: son, Uh, he wants to buy a citrus. It's a pink grapefruit plant, Uh tree, uh, called Citrus Maxima, And he wanted to know your opinion as to whether or not that he could grow that here. He lives outside Poteet. Does he need to prep for something to to do it, or should he not even buy it?
4: Well, you know, the problem with grapefruit is they make a big tree, <laughs> and they're not especially cold-hardy. Um, there are some citrus that, you know, stay more compact. Some of them would keep them even more compact by grafting them onto a rootstock called Flying Dragon. Uh, I've never seen grapefruit on a dwarfing rootstock, but uh, if I were if I were going to plant a grapefruit, I would, if at all possible, try to find one on a dwarfing rootstock because um, most of, especially the pink grapefruit varieties, are not very cold-hardy. And, you know, who knows what the weather's going to do this year. Everybody talks about global warming. We've had several... Um, winters when we had cold, but we didn't have any severe cold. But I've lived in Texas long enough to see it five degrees in San Antonio, uh, back actually about the time we were opening Shades of Green. So, um, it's, it's a little bit of a gamble anywhere north of the valley. In fact, uh, the, uh, uh, Rio Grande Valley was, uh, was many years ago. They had a freeze down there that wiped out pretty much all the citrus, which can, turned out to be a huge boon because then they replanted with the newest thing around, which was the pink grapefruit, and everybody liked that so much better than they liked the Florida grapefruit, the old uh, sour ones that uh, for many years, the uh, Texas Rio Grande Valley, led the nation in citrus production, uh, and it was all because it gotten cold and froze out everything. So, um, There's no grapefruit that is consistently available, that is consistently cold hardy. So I'm just going to, you know, caution him to, if he can find it on a dwarfing rootstock, very good. Uh, If not, plant it in an area sheltered, protected from the north wind, and just especially the first couple of years, be prepared to cover it if it gets really, really cold.
6: Okay. That's real hard to understand he was supposed to be listening
4: so i hope he understands that because well it's dwarf- yeah it's kind of <laughs> like a lime tree uh they're just not that cold hardy but a lime's a little bit smaller so it's a little bit easier to cover i had a friend in san antonio who grew a grapefruit tree from seed quite a few years ago and he built a greenhouse over that tree Every every winter, and it got to be where his greenhouse was 15 feet across and 10 feet tall, but he picked bushels of grapefruit off of that tree. But it's just, it's not, you know, it's not a tree you can just stick in the ground and it's going to take care of itself. It's probably going to need winter protection at least a lot of years.
6: Gosh. Well, if you want that grapefruit tree, you're going to have to do a lot to save it, probably. <laughs> <laughs>
4: uh, that's, you know, that's just part of the game of gardening.
6: Yeah. And one last thing is that we are interested in trying to move a saucer magnolia. And it's about six foot tall, uh, about six foot wide, uh, standing around. Uh-huh. It's been planted there for 20 years probably,
0: hmm.
6: and I think you told us, I asked you a, a year or two ago about it because I moved from there, and I was wanting to get it and move it to where I am. Uh-huh, right. And I, I you said you couldn't do it until, like, October or something.
4: Well, you want to do it during the cold season, like my previous caller that was, uh, you know, going to move, uh, you know, a a tree – uh, the time, the ideal time is probably between Thanksgiving and uh, Valentine's Day, if you want dates that you can remember. Uh, that's the time when the tree will be in the least, uh, stress from, you know, heat and drought. So, uh, just get as big a root ball on it as you can, move it, uh, replant it immediately, have the new hole dug before you start digging the tree up, and, like I say, after you've planted it, spray it down regularly, uh, use some root stimulator in the form of uh, either has to grow or super thrive or garrett juice or all of the above. Um and um, a tree that's not any bigger than that, if it's uh if it's that small, there's pretty fair chance you'll be successful in moving it.
6: It's short it's short for a tree, but fat, you know, it's mm-hmm. spread out and it just those blooms are so pretty they're pink oh, yeah. and different colors and and it's always i've I've seen it when it's freezing outside and that was full of those blooms
4: oh yeah absolutely early yeah. spring
6: okay so thank you so much appreciate all you. of your help
4: hey, it's always a pleasure jenny you get out and have a good sunday and uh, we'll talk
3: again South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550, KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. We're going to visit with Thomas and Austin and Kathy.
4: Probably have time for one more call beyond that. There is one open line, so grab it quickly if you like. You know the number, 210-599-5555. And I'll say good morning, Thomas.
14: Good morning, Bob. Well, good morning, sir. I wanted to ask you, have you ever heard of a fellow by the name of uh, Barkholder around the Johnson City area?
4: Um, he, uh, I knew a fellow in San Antonio by that name, but I can't say I know a lot of people up well, for Johnson City.
14: I believe I've got the name right. Anyway, this guy is a very a wealthy fellow. He used to own uh, Church's Chicken or, oh, or oh, yeah. whatever. He He sold that uh sometime. Bam- Bamberger.
4: Yeah. Bamberger is the guy you're talking Bamberg, about. Bamberger.
14: Okay. Yeah. And uh he picked the <laughs> I looked at it, it was on YouTube. He, he his goal was to pick the sorriest piece of land he could find. I guess it was around Johnson <laughs>
6: City.
4: <laughs> you know the story? Oh I know the story. I've I've attended a a lecture before and I have uh I have a couple of books of photographs of his ranch and uh um, there's a small part of it that I would say he's a little guilty of not letting the truth interfere with a good story, but, um, and, you know, he talks about a lot of different things. He's done a wonderful job of not only preserving the land and, uh, encouraging a lot of people to do the same, but some of the areas where he thought he'd just totally you know, saved everything from any potential problems. Some of those areas in the real severe drought in 2011, uh, he still ran out of water and still lost some trees to the drought. So it's not a perfect system, but his ranch is called Sela, and uh he's a remarkable man who has done just some absolutely incredible things up there. And uh, if you want a beautiful book, and I'm trying to remember uh, – Oh golly, can't say his name, uh, but uh, one of the really good photographers out there, who's also a great naturalist, uh, did a book called Seasons at Selah, and uh, it is one. It's a coffee table book, but uh, some absolutely tremendous uh, photography. Uh, David Langford's the guy I'm trying to think of, and so yeah, yeah. But Bambergers uh, really, really put his money. To very very good use and done a whole lot of things and helped a whole lot of people. So yeah, his story. Is what, was, very, very what did good. the
14: grass have? What did the grass do to, to bring back the water? That's what I didn't understand. Uh,
4: uh. Well, uh, the grass tends to you know hold the soil in place and uh, helps the water penetrate more into the soil. But uh, the main thing that helped with bringing back more water was getting rid of the cedar and allowing more percolation, so to speak. You know, uh, that's one of the things we deal with in the groundwater business on the the uh, groundwater district that I serve on. Uh, you know, there have been good calculations that show that in a really good rain, probably less than 5% of that water actually makes it into the aquifer. And with what uh, David did with uh, his land getting rid of the cedar and improving the grass cover, uh, it has helped hold the water in place to where a higher percentage of the rain that falls actually makes it down into the aquifer that's a bit of an oversimplification but uh uh that's that is one of the principal things you know that is that has occurred where he is taking okay. the land back cuz you know 150 years ago a lot of uh, the hill country was grassland and just Uh-oh. when we took away when we took away fire when we started letting the ash juniper take over uh, it went, uh, we lost a lot of topsoil, overgrazed with sheep, a lot of different problems, and going back to a native grassland is actually returning it to the way the land looked back in the early 1800s.
14: Well, he shows a big, like a big tank with beautiful, you know, deep water and all that. I thought, man, that's, you know. Oh, yeah.
4: He's done very, very good things,
14: Thomas, and
4: he's really improved the land, but in a severe drought, he had some of the same problems that the rest of us face. But, yeah, I, uh, as a matter of fact, somebody sent me that most recent YouTube post. But if you ever get an opportunity to hear the man speak, and he does lecture periodically, uh, even though he's really getting up there in years, but uh, he gives an excellent lecture, puts on a very excellent slideshow, and uh, very much worth attending, and uh, he's a wonderful man to visit with
14: great another thing real quick about what what the heck is happening in california what what kind of brush or whatever is, it? is it burning i mean that's unbelievable what's going on out out
4: there i mean well yeah and uh, you know i i attended. I, I went to a lecture actually in wyoming put on by the forest service last year as a matter of fact and uh The, and, and, you know, really don't have time to, to have a long discussion about this, but the biggest problem in California is that throughout you know, the thousands of years that California has existed, wildfire has been a part of their ecology. Every year or two, it would burn off. When man moved in, started building subdivisions in these areas, and stopped okay. letting the land burn, you got a much, much bigger, what they call fuel load. There's just a lot more material out there to burn. and well, then it when brush you get the, or what? Yeah, yeah, it's a brushy growth, and then you get those really dry Santa Ana winds, and... Uh, um you just you know you're looking at an overgrowth of fuel it's a reason that a lot of the forest service people in our timberlands are doing a lot more control burns trying to take out a lot of the undergrowth but uh they've simply got a very very high fuel load in a very dry condition and the result is disaster so thomas is interesting and i always enjoy talking with you um but i need to move on and talk to austin at this point so good morning austin
8: Hi, Bob. It's a pleasure Uh, to talk to you.
4: Well, it's good to talk to you.
8: I have a question. We live in the Leon Springs area, Uh and our whole backyard is St. Augustine grass, but one area is incredibly shaded,
2: Uh and
8: the grass, it's gone. I mean, there Uh is no grass. And we're right. wondering, what what variety can we try there to that might be green?
4: Well, you're not going to grow a grass if it's too, you know, if it's too shady for Saint Augustine. The most tolerant of shade of the Saint Augustine grasses. There's one called Delmar. There's one called Palmetto. But there is a point when it simply gets too shady for any kind of grass. And at that point, we start thinking about shade tolerant ground covers like dwarf monkey grass or even Asian jasmine will grow with much less light uh, than even the most shade tolerant grass. But uh, that's, you know, that's the issue when you've got really big, really dense, beautiful trees. Um when you go walking around in the forest, you really don't find much grass because it it gets too shady <laughs> for any grass true. but yeah the the most shade tolerant Saint Augustines are Palmetto and del mar, but long term it sounds to me and
8: del mar
4: yeah, Palmetto oh. and Del Mar, but it sounds okay, to yeah. me like you ought to be thinking ground cover at some point uh because it may just be okay. too shady even for those grasses.
8: And you're saying Asian jasmine?
4: Asian jasmine or Asiatic jasmine. Um, Asiatic uh,
8: jasmine.
4: Yep. Okay. It, it makes a beautiful, dense ground cover. takes a little while to get established. If you want something more okay. grass-like, there is something called dwarf mondo or dwarf monkey grass, lush, dark green. Oh, okay. Uh, It's it's a beautiful ground cover If it's an area that you walk through I would always put some stepping stones or something Because it doesn't stand up to foot traffic really well But if you want something that will be very happy in the shade uh, The dwarf mondo grass And like I say, it's it's a monkey grass It's not a true grass at all It's actually in the lily family But if you want something that looks like grass Dwarf mondo grass is going to be your best bet And
8: do you have that at Shades of Green?
4: We do. We don't carry the St. Augustine grasses because they have to be planted immediately after they're cut from the field. Right. But, yes, we sell many, many, many small pots of dwarf monkey grass. <laughs> it, it's okay. one of the most popular plants in the nursery because there are a lot of people facing the same problems as you are.
8: And what do we do, measure the area and then come try and figure out how much we need?
4: That was is what you'd want to do. You'd want to decide how patient you are because it doesn't spread super quickly. Uh, most people okay. opt to start with a small area, be sure that they really like it, and then just uh, expand it as they have the uh, energy and the funds to do so.
8: Okay, so dwarf monkey grass.
4: Dwarf monkey grass, also known as dwarf mondo, M-O-N-D-O, dwarf mondo grass.
8: Oh, Mondo. Okay, great. Yeah, either Mondo or monkey.
4: It's the same plant, just two different names.
8: Okay. Super. Thank you so much.
9: I appreciate your help.
4: Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you.